Hello and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here to talk about stuff this week on the show, continuing our coverage of the PlayStation 5. We've now had a full week with it. I assume we've both beaten Spider-Man, right? Yes, yeah, I think I beat Spider-Man like the day after the last podcast. (laughs) Awesome, so we're going to talk about Miles Morales with spoilers. Uh, I am... I think close to done with Demon's Souls, but I have been playing a shit ton of Demon's Souls. Yes, I'm not. I'm definitely not close to done, but I have played a lot of it. So we will talk about Demon's Souls. Uh, and then at the end of today's show, we will also be doing our first check-in on Season 2 of The Mandalorian. Which actually, Sean, you and I have been talking a lot about off the show because it's so good and we've wanted to talk about it. But I think we're going to talk about it now. There have been four episodes out of the eight we are going to get this season. Uh, and they have been pretty tremendous. So I am excited to talk about this uh, great Star Wars show, Sean. Yeah, so we've got we've got a loaded plate today for this podcast. Jam-packed episode. Uh, I don't have any like additional stuff because my stuff is the stuff we're talking about today. I don't know if you do, Sean. No, I think the only other thing I've been doing is I have also continued to play Genshin Impact, which is one of the things about the PS5 that is nice is how quickly stuff loads. Even Genshin, that's not a native PS5 game, but they updated it so that it is taking advantage of some of that enhanced loading speed, that it is way easier for me to just be like, oh, I I can play Genshin Impact for like 10 minutes and do some of my daily stuff because there's a whole event going on that game, and then load into Demon's Souls, and it takes like maybe one minute to go from playing Genshin Impact to being in Demon's Souls, and it's like, fuck, dude, that's fast. Maybe less. Demon's Souls loads stupid. I mean, they all do, but it's stupid how fast it is. Especially yeah, if I mean, you, most of that most of that time is like navigating the menu to get to Demon Souls, not Demon Souls right. loading. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So we're going to talk about all of that. Um, this is our last week. We're going to be fully remote for a while because I am heading back to Colorado for the Thanksgiving break, and then probably just staying through Christmas because I, I'm not going to be coming back and forth a bunch. Yeah, there's no reason to if all your yeah. shit is remote. All my shit is remote. Uh, I am. Uh, don't worry about my health. I am driving, so I will be safe. Uh, as long as I don't like fall asleep and crash and die at the wheel. Um, but hopefully, from COVID, I will be safe because uh, I'll be in my car. Uh, so I'm doing that. That's that's Sean. Basically, I am doing this podcast. I will post this podcast. I will furiously pack, and then I will try to get to bed early so I can leave tomorrow while this podcast is out. I will be on the road. Um, so that because it is supposed to snow on Tuesday, so I'm trying to get out of Dodge. Yeah, but anyway, so that's all my stuff. Um, should should we just jump into a couple of small pieces of news, Sean? Yeah, what's going on in the news, Jonathan? Well, there was one. These are both about superhero things. Um, and the first is about Wonder Woman 1984, which we learned this week is going to be debuting 
uh, on Christmas Day on both HBO Max, for anyone who has that service, and in theaters where theaters are open. So around the world, obviously some countries, theaters are fine. Some countries, like the United States, um, the entire theatrical industry is dying because we cannot have theaters open, and our uh, government is too inept to do anything like pay theaters to stay closed. Uh, so if you are near a theater that is safe, you can go see Wonder Woman. If you're in the United States, probably just stay home. It will be on HBO Max. Uh, this is by far and away the biggest movie to ever debut on a streaming service. The only other contender would be Mulan. Uh, but Mulan uh, kind of came and went with a whimper because one, Disney Plus did it in that weird way where you had to pay an extra 30 bucks. And uh, Mulan was mired in a bunch of controversy based on just... There was a lot. There was a lot going on with Mulan. I'm not going to yeah. recap all of it. So that one kind of was a dud. But like, I, I think Wonder Woman is, is one that people are universally excited for. That first movie was great. The trailers for this one have been fantastic. Um, and, you know, this is a big gamble on the part of Warner Brothers because this would have been a billion-dollar movie. This, is, this, this movie was budgeted and planned to make a billion dollars theatrically. Now... What they're having to hope is that, like, where it can open in the rest of the world, maybe it makes some money. Like, uh, parts of Japan and China, a lot of a lot of Asian countries are okay. Some parts of Europe, maybe it can open, um, and maybe it can recoup some of the costs there. But then in the U.S. and a lot of the Western world, hope that it drives so much attention to HBO Max that it is basically worth it as the most expensive promotional tool imaginable for their HBO Max streaming service. Mm -hmm. um, and it's an interesting strategy. It's a big moment. Um, and, you know, I think, in my view, the future of theatrical has has always been one day we would get to this point of simultaneous streaming and theatrical release. We're getting there much faster because of coronavirus. I don't have any idea if this will be a permanent thing. Because if it doesn't do well and they don't make their money back, then no, it's not going to be a permanent thing. But if this is successful, I think the future of theaters, once they come back, could look more like this. And I'm very curious about that. And I think you even see, there was a statement the uh, the head of Warner Media made, he made a Medium post about this, explaining it. And he had some very carefully worded like marketing speak about how... This was about, you know, consumer choice. And, like, if you want to go see it in the theater, you can. If you want to see it streaming, you can. And all I could see there was, like, this is the seeds of how they're going to pitch this for the inevitable future when this is just how movies come out. Yeah, no, it's fascinating because it is, like you said, Jonathan, it's kind of been, it's been an ongoing topic on this podcast is the deteriorating theater experience for film. And it has always felt like we were eventually heading towards this point where the industry either collapses or it has to find other means of making money and in doing business. And yeah, it just feels like is the COVID has accelerated that to this ridiculous degree where I would never have predicted that they would have done this with Wonder Woman. I was pretty surprised when that news dropped, um, especially because as far as we can tell, like the Mulan thing just didn't go well. So it's, yeah, yeah. It's interesting that they're, they're making this swing with Wonder Woman and it's nice for me because I do want to watch that movie, but there's no way in hell I was going to go to a fucking movie theater to go see it in uh, a month. Things right. are not going to be better in a month, right? They will be worse. They will be much yeah. worse in a month. And so, yeah, I mean, I think 
it's it's a couple of things. I mean, one, the Mulan example, like I said, has a bunch of extenuating circumstances for why it didn't do well. Uh, in part because it was not a very good movie is like the basic thing. And Wonder Woman will probably be a very good movie and will have word of mouth. So like that's exciting. Um, but also like if HBO Max had come roaring out of the gate earlier this year and was doing fine, they wouldn't be doing this. You know, it's because they had this confusing, weird, awful launch with no compelling original content. It's a good service for all of their back catalog. But, like, it didn't have anything, it, it didn't have The Mandalorian, which is, like, why Disney Plus got big right out of the gate, right? It didn't have anything like that. So, uh, and it's confusing, and, like, until this week, you couldn't get it on any Amazon Fire TVs, and you still cannot get it on any Roku devices, which they need to fix that. Because if this is still not on Roku when this comes out, then it's just going to fail, because Roku is where I, f I feel like most people stream on smart TVs. It's, it's like cornered that market. My parents, for instance, like they have a little Roku puck in every room of the house that has a TV. And if it's not on Roku, it just doesn't exist to them. Like it's, it's, I feel like Roku actually caters to like that audience of like older Americans who maybe have used like cable boxes before. Um, so they need to figure that out obviously, but this could be the thing that, that helps that service. So we'll see. Um, uh, yeah, it's fascinating. I, there are some problems too, like HBO max has no 4k streaming at the moment and it doesn't seem like they're going to have that in time. And like, I would be a little more psyched for this if I knew I could watch it in the quality, like the Mandalorian comes out where it's got like 4k Dolby vision. And it's like, this is like better than theaters in some ways mm -hmm. and it won't be, it'll be a 1080p stream which is not ideal. They should maybe make that service better. HBO has like the worst video streaming and it just has since it launched as a streaming platform. Um, but yeah, it's, I, and, and again, I think the implications for the future are big. I think you're going to see a lot of movies, uh, a lot of movie studios I think are going to be waiting and seeing how this does. And if this is a hit for Warner Brothers, I think we could see more movies doing this. If it's a flop, they won't. Um... And yeah, and, and you know, it's a big question for someone like Disney. Like, I think this doing well for Warner does not mean Disney would then put Black Widow on streaming because Disney's Disney Plus is already successful and they need to actually make the money on Black Widow. So there's a bunch of considerations. We'll see. Um, but I am excited we know when we're going to get to see this movie. And it's not going to be on a big screen, but, you know, it's still going to be good. Yeah. No, it's and you know I mean like we've talked about it is in some ways it's like a relief for me that's like oh I just don't have to bother with the bullshit theater thing and play like the theater roulette and be like oh is it going right. to go good this time is the video going to be bright enough is the audio going to be calibrated appropriately like is anything stupid going to happen like they don't put the fucking house lights down until like 10 minutes into the movie like all the kind of like just horse shit random stuff that happens yeah because movie theaters don't care anymore just don't have to deal with it. It's like, if I want food, I can just have my own food. If I need to pause the movie to go to the bathroom, I can just do that. If I need to change the volume, I can just change the fucking volume and not have to deal with any of that. Like, there's a level of control you get over the experience that is uh, comforting to me, certainly. Definitely. And I, I do think if we are headed towards a future, and I do think this is really possible, a future where movies debut day and date streaming and theaters... And I think in that world, there are going to be, A, fewer theaters, and B, the theaters that are still there are going to have to invest in a better theatrical experience. Mm 
for exactly the reasons we're talking about. And I have long been baffled that, like, you know, the comparable moment to this is the 1950s when television sets came out. And TV sets at the time were shitty little, like, 10-inch boxes in black and white that were not showing the same stuff that was in movie theaters. And yet it was still a competitor. It was still a thing that movie theaters were losing business over. And so they invented stuff like widescreen and Cinerama. And this is the first 3D boom. And like there was a concentrated effort to make theaters better to entice people back in. And this that just didn't happen. It just didn't happen. We got more gimmicks in the 2000s with the advent of streaming. We got 3D back again. We got some of the like D-Box shit. But by and large, theaters just cut costs and got shittier. Mm-hmm. And it's very weird. It's very weird that that was the strategy. And I wonder if that strategy changes. Um, have I, Sean, I forget if I've talked about this on the podcast. Have I told you guys my theory of what I think Disney should do in terms of theater stuff? I don't think so. So, okay. This is, I don't know if this is a theory or just an idea. This is what I would do if I were in charge of Disney right now. I am not saying this is like the morally, business, ethically right thing to do, but this is what I would do if I wanted to make a shit ton of money. Okay. Um, AMC is the biggest theater chain in the United States. It has theaters in all 50 states. It's big. It's everywhere. If you live anywhere, you can probably, you are in driving distance of an AMC, right? Mm-hmm. And AMC went bankrupt this summer. They stuck around, they got an influx of capital, but they are really struggling um, to keep their doors open, and they're not open because of the pandemic. If I were Disney, I would take some of the money I have in the Scrooge McDuck vault, and I would buy AMC. Just buy the chain. And now, as Disney, I have theaters in all 50 states. If you are not aware, the Paramount Decree, which was a Supreme Court decision from 1948 which uh, made vertical integration of, of Hollywood illegal. Vertical integration is, in the early years of cinema, uh, movie studios owned their own theaters. So a stu- like WB had WB theaters, and they, they only booked their movies. And there were other things like block booking was a big practice, where you would force a theater to take all of your movies. And this level of vertical integration was deemed anti-competitive because back then we had functioning courts. Um, and, and it was deemed anti-competitive and they broke it up. Uh, that was actually, this was very undercovered because it happened in the middle of COVID and the election and everything. But the Paramount Decree was rescinded this year. Vertical integration, did you know that, Sean? No, I did not know that. No, that was rescinded um, in a Supreme Court decision. So vertical mm-hmm. integration of Hollywood is fully legal. So if I were Disney, I would buy AMC because with one purchase, I get theaters in all 50 states. And I would rebrand them as Disney Plus Cinemas. And I would have a tier of Disney Plus, the streaming service, that would get you into a number of movies in the theaters every month. So let's say you pay $20 for Disney Plus and you can also go see five movies in the theater. And they would program all their Disney movies. They would put the Marvel movies out. They would put the Star Wars movies out. All of that stuff. They would also have a regular recurring rotation of their catalog. So Snow White, Sleeping Beauty, Pixar, Toy Story. All of that would be in some of the screens. And, hey, maybe they charge WB and, and not Fox. They own Fox. Um, what are the other? Paramount. Maybe they charge some of the other companies to, to show their movies in that theater as well. But you don't get those with the Disney Plus tier. And all of the stuff that goes into their theaters also goes under their streaming service so you can go see black widow in the theater and if you want to watch it again that night come home it's on your streaming service 
Why would Disney not do this? I think they are, or something similar to that. Like if they can just, if they can just fucking do it, um, because they it's can. Not legal. It's yeah, it's if legal. They, it is fully yeah. legal. Yeah, no. So we are, we are just that like one step away from movies just becoming Disney's, and you go to the theater uh-huh. to go watch a Disney because uh-huh. because fuck because we're fucked because our society doesn't function on like a basic level. Now, there is a chance we will have a new presidential... Well, it's not a chance. We will have a new presidential administration. And there is a chance that the Biden administration's Justice Department will be more anti-competitive. And so, if Disney tried to do this, that might get shot down in a way their purchase of Fox was not. But even under Democratic administrations recently, um, there has been no real anti-competitive lawsuit kind of stuff. So, I think this is... Like, if I were Disney... I would, I would, uh, this would be a slam dunk investment, right? Yes, no, I mean, you're just, you're one step away from, like, monopolizing the entire movie business. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, if if you were the owner of Disney and had no moral scruples, which, you know, billionaires don't, that's 100% what you would do. Yeah. So anyway, that's what I mean by, like, the future of movies and I think the Paramount decree falling is a big reason why we're going to see more of this kind of stuff. Because theaters now, theaters effectively have no more negotiating leverage. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. Uh, other piece of news this week, also related to Disney, is um, this isn't really a piece of news, but it's a discussion I wanted to have. Because I'm really curious to hear your thoughts on this, Sean. Uh, we learned this week from The Hollywood Reporter that Black Panther 2 is going to be going forward uh, with filming next summer. They're planning for summer 2021. They're going to start filming this. Very few details. Like, all of the cast is going to be there. Uh, they're saying Letitia Wright will have an expanded role as Shuri, uh, T'Challa's little sister. But what was not addressed, of course, is the passing of Chadwick Boseman and what the plan is for Black Panther 2. And so, you know, I was very curious, and I went through, like, the hashtag on Twitter, and... I've talked before on this podcast how people have gotten increasingly allergic to recasting in the 2000s. Mm-hmm. And it's in full force because there were a lot of people saying like, you know, if Disney recasts Black Panther, we burn it all down. It's an affront to Chadwick Boseman's memory. And I wanted to talk about this because I have kind of the exact opposite reaction. And I'm curious what you think about that. I feel like it maybe has been enough time since Chadwick Boseman passed that we can have this conversation of what do they do with the character T'Challa and Black Panther now that he's gone when they make more movies. And I'm curious what you think, Sean. Yeah, I mean, my I don't think they're going to recast it. Um, like, I think they're going to probably have a shooty take over as black panther which has precedence in the source material anyways um and i suspect that that's the route they're going to go because i think you could recast him but i don't think that the audience broadly speaking would accept it right so like from from their point of view in terms of what they're making i don't think that you can reasonably recast the character and expect the audience to go along with you. I just don't, I think like, and I, th- I think it's because specifically because it's Black Panther, I think it is hard because I think people have such a strong, I mean, with any of these like modern Marvel characters, they have such an intense fixation on both the actor and the character um, that I think trying to recast any of those characters would be very hard. 
I think specifically about Black Panther. I think you're they're opening up a can of worms if they try to do that that they are not going to want to do. Like I think it's personally I think it would be fine. Like I I would not personally I think be too put off by it. Um but I do not think that they would ever do it. Um yeah, I think like maybe they would in like 10 years or something when we get like the Marvel Cinematic Universe reboot or some bullshit then then they'll do it but not in this continuity. I don't think they're going to. So, yeah, and I disagree so strongly with, like, like here, I, I think you're right, Sean. I think they will not recast it, but I think that's the wrong choice. I feel like, because, so what you were saying there is that you feel like the audience wouldn't go along with it. And my feeling is that this is a real chicken and the egg situation where, like, recasting has kind of fallen by the wayside in recent years. And I think what I mean by chicken and the egg is I don't know if it is that the audience stopped accepting the idea of recasting or if movie studios decided they weren't doing it anymore and so audiences were, like, weaned off of it. But, like, mm -hmm. recasting is not a weird thing in film history. It's obviously not a weird thing in stage history. Like, the character is the character and the actor is something else. And it is possible to do recasting. And my feeling is that when I consider that, like, T'Challa just has to, that, like, in the public consciousness in Disney's mind, he has to die with Chadwick Boseman, that is tragic to me. That is tragic to me, the idea that, that this character who, because of Chadwick Boseman's amazing work, became bigger than him as a person, that when he dies, you just have to put that character on the shelf and stop doing anything with him. And the foundation that you laid in that first movie and in the Avengers films, it's just done. We can't, we can't develop that character. We can't develop his relationships. We can't now see like what he would be like as King, which is like the obvious next step of the Black Panther story that just you have to truncate his story and, and get him out of there. And that is very tragic to me. And it feels like a very limited version of imagination where I feel like the respectful thing to do to the man's legacy would be to find another actor who could play it. And I do think there are other actors who could do it. It is especially because he is like the first and only significant black superhero we've had in a major Hollywood movie. There are a lot of actors who have just never gotten to be considered for a black superhero part. And like... I would be fascinated to see someone else's take on this character that could take what Chadwick Boseman did, build on it, and bring the character into the future. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, and, and, I, and I guess my view is that that's not disrespectful to Chadwick Boseman's legacy. It is more respectful because what you do is you say the foundation he laid down gets to live beyond him. And, and I feel like the, the just... The, the allergy to recasting that we have created is really weird and toxic to me. Um, and, like, if it makes you, like, cut off avenues of your story, that's, that's just weird to me. Um, and, and I'm sure there's ways to do it and make it work, but, you know, they're inevitably going to have to do the weird he died off screen thing. And, and then the entire movie is going to be weirdly, like, more about that character and his legacy than it would be if you just recast it and let it kind of move on and live. Um, and so that's, I guess that's my feeling. And I just, I, the idea of tying, especially for characters like this that are, 
that were created before like these actors were born and will be there after all of them are gone like and have all been played by multiple actors at a certain point or will be in the history of film like I think it's it's okay and like we have all these recent examples of good recasting that like from before I feel like we got super allergic to it um, although a good example is like uh, the Hulk when mm-hmm. they announced that they were not bringing Edward Norton back, I don't know if anyone remembers how much consternation there was on the internet. Like, there was a real school of thought that felt like the entire Marvel experiment had failed because they were not going to have their Hulk in the Avengers, and they had recast it. People forget this. That was the dominant view, that Marvel had, like, fucked up irrevocably because their whole idea was to make the four characters and then put them in a movie, and now they weren't going to do it. And then Mark Ruffalo turned out to be by far the best Hulk and Bruce Banner we've ever gotten in live action. And nobody even remembers Edward Norton played the part. This is a different circumstance, I recognize. But, like, it was a creative... Like, like what if they had chosen just, like, well, the Edward Norton thing didn't work out. No more Hulk. That would be weird. That would be really fucking weird. And so that's just kind of my view on this. And... You know, maybe there is a way to do it great with Letitia Wright and Shuri. I also think, like, um, recasting Black Panther and having Shuri as Black Panther are not mutually exclusive things. You can do both, yeah. and you could do a Shuri spinoff if you wanted to. Like, they can make as much Black Panther stuff as they want. So anyway, that's my spiel, um, and I just, I, I know this is, like, out of step with how people think now, but that's just kind of my view on things. I mean, again, I don't personally disagree, but when I look at, like, when Insomniac replaced the character model, it's not even a different performance because it's the same voice actor, the same motion capture data. They replaced the character model for Spider-Man and Marvel Spider-Man. They received like a targeted harassment campaign on the internet for that. It's like, I just feel like, yeah, like people are so resistant to change and are so like, heavily tied to and like like attaching like so much like personal identity to some of this kind of stuff um and and i feel like black panther is like 50 steps above that in terms of like public awareness the attachment specifically to chadwick boseman that chadwick boseman like tragically passed away i feel like people have such a strong attachment to it that i agree with you from like a narrative and in like storytelling perspective there's nothing wrong with it at all I think like Disney would be fucking up if they did it. And I don't think they're going to do it entirely from like a PR perspective. But Um, I think it would be hard for the public to accept. I don't think so. I think, I think there would be the initial outcry from a certain segment because that happens with every recast. I mean, you can, and, and, and and this is, this is what I mean. You have to lead you at a certain point. You have to lead the sheep to water. You have to lead on this because you know, Every recast is followed by that. Like what I said, like the when when they recast the Hulk, outcry, nobody remembers the outcry. Nobody remembers that there was controversy over that. When Dumbledore died in Harry Potter and they got Michael Gambon, there were a lot of people who were like, that's not Richard Harris, this sucks. Nobody remembers that. People like Michael Gambon as Dumbledore. Um, when... Like when they they the Game of Thrones recast that dude between seasons three and four. No one remembers that Ed Screen played that guy in season three. They I don't just even know remember who you're talking about. You're, uh, I watched uh, that show like a year ago. Da- Daenerys's boy toy um, in in Marine, uh, the guy she was fucking, uh, oh. the head of her army. I didn't even notice yeah. that they had changed. I mean, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. 
Uh, there are other examples I could. Uh, James Bond. Every time they announce a new James Bond, people hate the new James Bond. Daniel Craig got death threats. Like, like, like they were like because Daniel Craig is blonde and James Bond had never been blonde before. There were like there was an outcry, and now he is the longest serving James Bond, and everybody loves Daniel Craig. And I think it will be difficult for Eon to recast that role, but they're going to have to do it. And when they do, people will outcry again, and then they'll get over it, and they'll like it. So, like, that's my view is that, like, yes, there will be the initial outcry, but also, like, if it's a good actor and people come to like them, then, then you know, you weather that for a little bit, and then people talk about it and go, man, you know, that's not Chadwick Boseman, but this actor did a beautiful job honoring that legacy and bringing it forward and then it would be a positive I, i'm just i'm 100 percent sure that if they cast it right that would be the ultimate conversation once the movie is out because that's they, how these well, things although go. If they cast it wrong they would oh yeah nuke the whole thing like, but what has done. marvel marvel's casting is famously very good like name a role they've miscast edward norton is the hulk i don't so i don't know that if he was, was miscast he was not that movie is bad thing. i don't know yeah. if it's his fault but um you're also talking about a movie that that's that's we're going back to the very beginning with yes. that one. That's that's so. that's because I think that's part of where it is for me with like a lot of those examples have one are older enough and are like have enough extenuating circumstances around them. Yeah, with like this one, I just like man. I again, if I were Disney, I would just not want to fucking deal with it. You would you it would just like the shit storm it would kick up on the internet would be terrifying. But like you have I don't know. I'm going to say, here's what I'll say. If if the Joe Biden campaign for president taught us anything, it's that what people say on the internet really doesn't fucking matter and you should ignore it. <laughs> that's, that's what I'll say. Internet is not real life. Uh, I, don't, I do not think any, not a single goddamn business decision on earth should be made based on what people say on Twitter. Not one. I, I agree. That's not how they, you know, we have like shows now just like change their fucking plot because people on Twitter figure it out before the twist happens. I know. Um, yeah. But anyway, I, I think here's the thing. I trust Ryan Coogler. If Ryan Coogler has has made a decision of that he thinks the best story to tell is one that writes T'Challa out, then he is correct because it's his story and he's going to do a great job with it. If Ryan Coogler feels like he needs to use T'Challa and he wants to recast it, I think Disney should let him do whatever he wants. That's kind of my view, I guess, is it should no, ultimately yeah, be absolutely. down to him. But yeah. Anyway, I, we've talked about this for a while, but I just think it's an interesting conversation. Um, also, I wanted to mention Chadwick Boseman's last movie is going to be coming out on Netflix this December. Um, and it got phenomenal reviews this week. Um, and because uh, it, it premiered for press and I am very excited about that. Um, so uh, it's him and Viola Davis. Uh, so that's going to be it's going to be extremely bittersweet. But mm -hmm. um, one more chance to to mem remember the guy. All right. Well, do you want to move on and talk about some PlayStation Five stuff, Sean? Yeah, let's talk about the PS Five. That PS quintuple. <laughs> well, we'll talk about the games in a second. But I mean, are there any additional like feelings you've had just having another week with the console? Uh, and the UI and the controller and all of that that you want to kind of follow up on from last week's big first impressions podcast. Uh, it's I just it it's very nice. I know like it it all works really well. Um, yep. I definitely feel like I've gotten very comfortable with the UI. Like I always find it very like there's a complaint about the UI. I always kind of roll my eyes at or find it weird is people being like it takes so too many button presses to, to turn it to the shutdown mode and like. 
it's like the same. It's the it's it's it takes the same amount of time as it did on the PS4. You just do it a different way. And it's feel like everyone goes to that home screen and then they hold down the PS button expecting it to bring up the menu to shut down the PS5 because that's what it did on the PS4 and that's not how you do it on the PS5. But when you get used to the different way you access it, it takes the same amount of time. Um, and I just have like, I, I was just listening to a podcast earlier today that someone was complaining about that. I was like, no, it's not. You're just, you're just pressing the wrong button now because it's a different button. It's not slower. Please, you can get used to different UI configurations. I mostly agree, Sean. I just think, I do think the way you have to do it, which is you open the screen, you arrow down, then you want to arrow left so you don't arrow through the whole list. I think it's weird and counterintuitive. If you, like, if you just press right, it just scrolls through the whole list in like one-tenth of a second and stops okay, but at do the you, end. But do you understand why? you? But you have to like learn it in a weird way that I don't think you ever did on other consoles. It's, it is in a place that feels... Like once you get used to it, you get used to it. Getting used to it feels weirder than I think it does on like the Xbox One or PS4. I will agree I with know, that. I don't know if I. Agree I don't with think that. it's slower. Think it's, I'm not saying it's slower, yeah. but I'm saying I think it like so like on the on the Xbox One, you just hold down the button and then you press A and that's it. You're done. On the PS4, it was largely the same thing. On this one, it is bring up the menu with a short press, not a long press. Arrow down. Either hold right or press left once, then press X, then press X again. It just, I understand if like you are not super into the UI of it all, that it can be a little more counterintuitive. I do think it's a little weird where they placed it. I'm me, fine with it. Feel, I've gotten used to it, but. It feels a lot like when I used my, when like occasionally if I'm like with my brother who he has an Android phone and I don't have my phone on me. I'm like, hey, can I use your phone for something? And I'm like, I have no idea how to use this thing. It's fucking sucks. It's like, no, it doesn't. I just haven't used it before. So it's like, it's, it is, it just sort of like strikes me as like a unwillingness to just sort of accept the device and use it the way that it's designed to be used. And it's the number of people complaining about it. just like, it's not, it's totally fine. You just have to do the thing that the device is designed to do for. Um, but yeah, but so, but that's not like my main takeaway is just like, it's really nice to use. One feature I've, um, I'm using more than I thought I would have, I talked about it last time, is you, if you hold down the mute button on the controller, it mutes all the volume from the console, um, which is really nice when I'm playing Genshin Impact and I just unlocked a new character called Child who's very, very cool. And I was playing the game and then wanted to look up a YouTube video to see um, what's some like stuff I can do with this character to, like what's like a good weapon to equip on him, all this kind of stuff. Um, and so I had my laptop and I brought up the YouTube video and started playing it. And instead of having to like fumble for my remote control to hit mute, I can just hold down that mute button and the volume of the game mutes, but I can still play it. So I don't have to go to the home screen. It's a lot of like little stuff like that, that I mean, as I'm using it more, I get more accustomed to like the little shortcuts and stuff you can do that are really nice. Oh, definitely. It's an infinitely better UI than the PS4. And like one thing that I've just noticed is... I just spend way less time in the UI than mm -hmm. on like any other console. Cause yeah. like for one, I've had a couple of big games that I've been sinking my teeth into, but just like the time you have to spend in it to get to where you want to go is just, it's just so frictionless. I've used that word a lot with the PS five. It just feels like it's removed a lot of the barriers. There are some weird things um, that they need to fix. I've talked about the HDR thing. They, I installed a bunch of more PS four games this week, like smaller ones. And like, 
they just look so bad with the HDR on because they're just not built for it. And like they need to figure out a toggle for that because going into the system settings to fix that is terrible and they need to fix that. Um, when you go to install a game from your library, it doesn't tell you how big it is or how much room it will take. That's bad. They need to figure out something about that. Um, like when you hit download, it should like bring up and just say, hey, this will take up. Like when you do it on Steam and Steam tells mm -hmm. you this will take up this much space. It just needs to do something like that because it's weird that it doesn't. Um, but other than that, like, like just those are little very fixable things. Um, there's no like big unfixable like inherent problem that I have found in using this system so far. There are some bugs. Um, the the like rest mode does not work perfectly with some games. Like like I've come into Demon Souls a couple of times after rest mode, and it's just being weird. Like one time it was like stuttering a bunch, and I had to close the app and restart it. Which, not a big problem, because it restarts in, like, five seconds. But, um, you know, so there's a couple of, like, growing pain kind of bugs that you expect. But, again, so many fewer than, like, this time in the PS4's lifespan. Yeah. So, or the yeah. PS3's or the 360's or whatever you want to name. Yeah, one other thing I've noticed that I'm, like, curious and, like, very interested for, like, the future as they, they update the UI and add more functionality is I feel like the activity card thing is pretty versatile because I started, um, after I beat Miles Morales, I wanted to sort of swing around the city. And so something I did a little bit on the PS4, but it never felt particularly gracefully integrated, was to play Spotify through the PlayStation 4 while I was playing a game. Um, and it works fine on the PS4, but it's just like, it's like a convoluted and it like, everything feels slow and sluggish in the way it does on the PS4. On the PS5, all that stuff ends up basically just integrating directly into the activity card interface. So if you bring up Spotify and you play Spotify through your console while you're playing a game, um, it then just basically creates a Spotify card in that list when you press the PS button that you can then open up and switch to a different playlist or change the volume. And it's like so fast and seamless um it's really cool and, and it just it's that kind of thing of thinking about eventually i would really love for them to like do a similar thing with youtube or in other video streaming services where they have the functionality but it's only on like a select number of different kinds of things to um snap videos to the side or put them video over video on your screen and that's mostly only accessible through the, that like hints system um that you can do or if you go to individual games you can do that with like and I think you can probably do this if you go to like the Twitch thing or whatever, where you can see people who are streaming PlayStation games from their PlayStation. If you access it from there, because that's in the same area as the games, it then does a similar thing where it just puts it in an activity card. I would love for them to, and I'm sure they could do this, to have a thing where you can do that with any of your media apps as well. Because I would love to be able to just put a different, like a longer YouTube video or something and put that in the corner um, while I'm playing if it's like a... Twitch stream or something like that uh, that does not have to be like this like select curated PlayStation only list there's a lot of versatility I can see in that UI I'm excited for them to eventually integrate because the w couple of ways that it does that now with like Spotify feels so slick and easy to use and fits really naturally into the overall UI like design language in a way that I think is pretty cool absolutely yeah no, it's cool stuff, and I hope they do. Like, I was playing... So I went back into Miles Morales after beating it just to kind of do a couple little trophies. Like, I hadn't done a 100x combo yet. Um, 
And I was a little disappointed. I couldn't... Once I had beaten the game, there were no more cards. Like, mm -hmm. the cards, like, go to a challenge. Like, I had to just go into the game and find the challenge again. I wish there was, like, an archive of cards of, like, I want to do this again. Because it would be cool to have that. Because they just disappear once you've done it once. And then yeah. they're gone. Yeah, I would love to be able to, like, pin certain cards and stuff like that. Like, just have, like, one for, like, Demon Souls that just takes me straight to the Nexus. Or to 1-3, which is my, like, farming spot is the um, Tower Knight art stone and you turn around and like kill those yeah. two knights that are back there and you just get like two half moon grass. I would love to just like have that be a like a, an activity card that is just pinned there because once you move on from an art stone, it just will then go to whatever like the next point is in that level that you have right. and that becomes where that activity is. It would definitely be nice to have some more cust uh, customization of that feature um, yeah. for the player. The controller is still phenomenal. I love yep. this controller. One, the one obvious weakness is the battery life. It's still not great. It's about on par with the DualShock 4's second revision. Um, and it's fine. It'll get you through the day. It's just not on par with like any other controller on the market. And this controller, I, I am less perturbed by it in the DualSense than I was in the DualShock 4 because the DualSense is doing so much more stuff on board. I don't think it's doing so much stuff that that battery life is fully justifiable versus the competition that has like, you know, you put double A's in your Xbox One controller and it'll last 40 hours, like, or, or the Nintendo Switch Pro controller is 40 to 60 hours, um, the Joy-Con are 20 hours. It's, it's still weirdly uh, small, and I don't love that, but it is, it's, it's fine. It'll get you through the day. Um, but, like, I, if, if you were having to make the pro-cons list of the DualSense, it's a very, very long pros list. That is the only con I've noticed so far. Yeah, it's definitely something that, as far as I can tell, the battery life is very dependent on how much the game uses the controller features. Because from what I can tell, because I had like a scare the first night I played it where I was like, oh my god, I had to charge this thing all the way up because I had plugged it in after I plugged it in my PS5 and then I had to do a bunch of work so I couldn't play it until like 7 o'clock. So it's was like, this is definitely a fully charged controller. And it felt like after like five hours, it was at the like blinking thing. But I think it's just because, because after that, I have not because I just charge it when I'm done with it for the day, I've never noticed it go below that second pip. Um, so I don't know what the battery life is. But I'm pretty sure Astro's Playroom, because it uses the haptics and the adaptive triggers so intensely, um, and I'm pretty sure that that is, like, draining the battery life more than, like, Demon's Souls and Spider-Man Miles Morales, which use that stuff. But it's not, like... You know, I because I, I ran around in GPU jungle yesterday because I was like, I just want to play some Master's Playroom. I was like, fuck, dude, that's right. This thing goes balls fucking crazy with the god with this goddamn controller, and it's sick. But I'm pretty sure that it drains that battery life very fast. Yeah, they just it's too bad. I don't know why they don't put bigger batteries in these things, but whatever. Because um, as least... far as I know, it does have actually like a battery that is the equivalent of the switch pro battery i'm not sure like what the where the because i remember reading the breakdown huh. of the controller and the battery was like the same quality battery that the switch pro controller uses so i don't know like where and how like the battery gets used differently or drained more depending on like the touchpad and stuff like that um but yeah it's right, definitely because... not that it's like a low quality battery that they use Okay, because that's what it was on the DualShock 4, right? It just was yes, kind of a shitty that was battery. A, yeah, that was a fairly shitty battery. This is like a very good battery in that controller. Okay. And, you know, one thing I will say also is it's USB-C now, so plugging it in is way easier. I know it's stupid. I know it's a little thing, but micro USB and mini USB are terrible and should be, uh, the people who made those should be uh, 
prosecuted at the Hague because those are such terrible connections to plug things in with. USB-C is very easy. Uh, again, not that important, but I do like it. Oh, yeah. No, I'm totally with you because I think I only own one other thing that uses USB-C since I don't have a Switch. Um, and I'm just like, man, it, it still feels very fresh to me. So every time I plug in the controller, it just feels nice. It's like this is a really solid, clear, easy cable to plug in. So thank God, like you can oh. get fucked micro and mini USB. All my controllers are USB-C now because the Switch controllers are. Uh, the Xbox One controllers are not, but the Elite controller, which is what I mainly use, is USB-C. Uh, and then the PS5 controller. So all my main controllers are USB-C now. I very much like that. Um, nice. if, if only Apple would update the fucking iPhone to put USB-C in there. God damn it. That's like the last holdout for me. But anyway. Mm. Um, all right. Should we talk? Let's talk Demon Souls first because I, I feel like that's less spoilery and then we can spoil the story for Miles Morales. Does that sound good? Yeah, sounds good to me. Fucking goddamn hell, Sean. Demon Souls is so good. Yes, it, oh is, it is very good. So where are you at? Like how much have you done? So I have done uh, the... So I have done... Um, I'm trying to figure out how to describe this. I've done the first two levels of every Archstone... And then after you do those first two levels of each one, then for worlds two through five, you get the Archdemons, which is the final bosses of those worlds. And I've done two of the four Archdemons, and I am open to doing the last big stretch of world one, which is the longest world, but I haven't done that yet. So I need to do two more Archdemons, and then the world uh, one, three, and four, and then that'll be, I think, most of the game. But I've yes, done, yeah. so I think I've done most of the game. Yes, no, you ever, yeah, because I mean, that's basically the game is you have the five levels in world one, the three levels in two through five, and I think then there's a, like a last thing I'd like, because I never finished the game, but I watched it get played through um, after I played Dark Souls, because I was like, I'm probably never going to go back to Demon's Souls, little did I know they'd make this remake, I was like, but I do want to see it, so I watched the live stream of it, um, and I'm pretty sure that that is basically what the game okay. is. Yeah, so you are, you're quite a bit further than me, like I've done, what, I've done levels the first three levels in world one i've done the first two levels in world two and three which is the tower of latry is three and then four and five i've only done the first area okay but you've done something from every world oh yeah yeah cool then we can talk about all of them um it's just a great game and it's 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 a phenomenal game at its bones and it is a phenomenal remake that blue point has given us um and overall it's just i mean what i've been thinking so much is that I feel like Demon's Souls has this legacy, and we've been guilty of saying this on the podcast too, of like, Dark Souls is the one that really is like the influential blah blah blah, and Demon's Souls is like kind of the rough blueprint or rough draft or something, and I don't feel that way anymore. I think Demon's Souls should probably just be talked about more in its like proper place of like, it's the thing that kind of invented all of this, and certainly Dark Souls does have some of its own specific innovations like the big interconnected world um, that is more in kind of the Metroid Prime direction. Um, but like so much of what makes the Miyazaki formula, the Miyazaki formula is in Demon Souls and it is not to me a like rough unfinished version of it. It's pretty close to perfection in most places and the rough edges that are there, I absolutely fucking adore <laughs> because they're amazing. Yeah, I think, I think I'm a little bit less hot on the game, mostly in that like I do feel, I do see the places where the later games improve a lot. Like, specifically, I think, like, a lot of the bosses feel fairly underwhelming to me. It's a, sure. like, especially after, like, Bloodborne and Sekido, which cater more to my, like, aggressive play style. You can feel them, like, 
trying to figure out exactly how to and like i think this is true of some of the the levels as well like how do you like construct this where and how should you put shortcuts um i had forgotten that demon souls does not have any like mid area bonfire equivalents so it's like you have to do the whole area with with for most of them is generally fine because you get a shortcut there's a couple that's just like oh fuck okay now i got to do this whole big run again um and so you can feel them sort of like figuring out some of those places um but the game overall is phenomenal like if you like dark souls if you like bloodborne um dark souls 2 or 3 sekido it depends on what you like about sekido whether or not you're going to like demon souls um but it is definitely like it is it is it is those games and it is the thing that creates the blueprint is the thing that creates the foundation that then gets repeatedly refi- refined over the subsequent Miyazaki games um yeah. it is it is it is absolutely phenomenal and I'm not saying there aren't things they change and refine. There absolutely are. And I agree mostly about the boss fights. Um, it's actually one thing this remake does amazingly well is Bluepoint's new coat of paint has made even the more underwhelming bosses really cool because they are <laughs> such aesthetic experiences. Uh, so that is nice. I agree. They're, they're more in the Dark Souls 2 vein instead of the Dark Souls 1 vein for me. But um, I just think like... Uh, my overall point, though, I think still stands of like, I think Demon's Souls probably because fewer people played it just doesn't get its place in the conversation probably as much as it should. And I feel mm-hmm. like that will be rectified now because like it's not like the rough draft of Dark Souls. It's much more the full bore progenitor of it. You know what I mean? Um, yes, and... it is the first game in the series. Yeah, yes. it is not some yeah. like weird side thing that then they kind of like oh but now let's make it good with dark souls yeah that is not what it is at all no it's great and and honestly some of the things that are different i really like um because it is different like so this game the biggest difference between demon souls and the other souls games is the structure um and it's not just the hub world thing because dark souls 2 goes back to that but dark souls 2 doesn't do the like um levels with no checkpoints thing because what Dark Soul, what Demon Souls does is you have your five arch stones in the Nexus. And the Nexus is, is, if you have not played it, it's sort of like the castle in Mario 64 or something. It is this hub world. And then you go into the different levels. And there are five arch stones. And it's essentially segmented like levels to the point that the community just refers to everything as like 1, 1, 1, yeah. 2, 2, 3, 2, 1, that kind of thing, right? Um, and each level within those arch stones is its own little like Dark Souls world, you know? And it is this big area that is like this big puzzle you have to like unravel and learn your way through and get through. At the end of it is a boss. For most of them, you're going to unravel different shortcuts and make the route simpler for yourself. And then you're going to get a boss. And there's something about the way it is sort of like bite-sized Dark Souls in places that I really, really adore. I really actually like that structure, and I think in some levels it works better than others, but overall, the experience of like starting a new level and knowing that, okay, this is a this is a fresh area for me to go through and master, and at the end of it, it will be like a self-contained thing that I have done, I really like about that. Overall, I probably do like the Dark Souls innovation of the big interconnected world even more, because you get a lot of that same sense of a hit, but it is less discontinuous, and I do like that. But um, the way Demon Souls does it, I really like it as an alternative, and we could spend a lot of time comparing this to Dark Souls 2, because I think Demon Souls explains all the ways why Dark Souls 2 is bad. Mm-hmm. And one of them is that Demon Dark Souls 2 borrows the Demon Souls formula to a degree, 
but not enough. It's like weirdly trying to do both Demon Souls and Dark Souls, and it winds up as like this kind of just like, eh. Like it doesn't have any like of the actual hook of it. Um, Demon Souls, like its its formula feels like it's very confident in in what this formula is, and it shifted it up for Dark Souls. But I do like this as an alternative quite a bit. Yeah, I think it's it's Demon Souls because of its structure has a much more kind of like arcadey quality to it of. It's because it, the structure of it reminds me of like basically a Mega Man style game where you have yeah. your different areas and you can go to them in any order once you've done the first level in Bulletaria and killed Phalanx, then you can go wherever you want. Like generally speaking, you kind of want to do it's sort of like a loop around them because it's more or less the way the leveling works is like, um, you know, worlds four and five are definitely harder than worlds one through three. And then like the secondary in each one gets harder. And so it's like, that's like the smoothest um, sort of progression in terms of your character level. But you don't have to do that. Like you absolutely can just like say, fuck it, I'm just going to go balls out. And I really like the Tower of Latria. Then you could just storm through the Tower of Latria and do that. Um, And there's something about that, that like openness in the level-based structure of it that as you said it's like it's very sort of defined where one level ends and then or where one begins and then where one ends and i think you're right that like the thing that dark souls 2 misses is that it kind of holds itself back from using either one as a, either structure as effectively as possible because it's kind of trying to do both at the same time it wants the seamless connectivity of dark souls while still having the like level variety and stuff of a demon souls where it's like here's like a very harsh break between i am in like swampland and now i'm in lava world and there's just like a very harsh break between those points and demon souls by just having them be separate worlds like you're just loading into world one two three four five and then each one has like the aesthetic evolves obviously as you go through it but it has generally speaking a this is what the tower of latria is like this is what the valley of defilement is like this is what the shrine of storms is like and they're going to have similar kinds of enemies similar sort of like traps and things like that like you know every level in the valley of defilement is going to do some stuff with like poison and plague and if you're playing on the ps3 the frame rate's going to be shit because the frame rate's always shit in these swampy areas and now that's all fixed <laughs> Um, and you know, it's like, you, you know, that some of those things are going to be similar in those areas. And so Demon's Souls, cause it just commits to that all the way. It's really able to use that structure in a way that's really fun and exciting. And you can just very freely decide, you know, I maybe have had enough of like the horror tone of the Tower of Latria. I want to do some of like what feels like slightly more actiony stuff. So maybe I'll go to like the lava world with like the Stone Fang tunnel and stuff like that. Um, and you can kind of pick and choose what you want to do when you want to do it. And then Dark Souls 2 that has this like weird sort of disjointed feel because none of the world actually kind of makes sense because there is no way to go from Swamp World to Lava World directly and have that be a thing that like makes sense for the geography for the player. Um, But you don't get the like freedom of the Demon Souls sort of hub structure that is as open as it is. And so Dark Souls 2 just is kind of like the worst of both worlds in some ways. Yeah, and like even with the separated worlds, I feel like everything in Demon Souls still feels more of a piece than Dark Souls 2 did. And some of that I will say, I don't know how much of that is Blue Point like aesthetically making choices that help this, but like there is something about these five areas of Boletaria. I can imagine how these are five areas within one world, mm-hmm. even if I am not seeing the links between them. Whereas Dark Souls 2, 
I literally can walk from one area to the next and it just makes no goddamn sense. It's just like weird and disconnected and it feels like different teams made different levels. And I know some people are big Dark Souls 2 fans. I don't understand you. I That game, I, I am now on the point of like, I think that game just might be a bad game now that I've played Demon's Souls. Because like it's so underwhelming. Um, but yeah, no, I agree with everything you just said. Um, and just like the the sheer like joy I feel. And like that it is joy. I should say it's not joy. It's like euphoria. Because it is this euphoria of like I am excited to see this new world. I am also scared of what I am going to encounter. It is like this, this mix of like high rushed emotions. When I go into a new archstone, like my initial run through and doing one of if each all five, but then like even further than that of like, okay, now I'm going to do the next part of this archstone and that euphoria comes back. And I have not felt that in that dose since Dark Souls one, the first time you know I played that. And like, because uh, I don't think Dark Souls 2 gives it, and Sekiro is a, just a very different thing. Like, you know, um, it's a euphoria of a totally different kind, mm-hmm. um, because Sekiro is more of a homogenous world, and that is to its credit. That's what it's trying to do. Um, but, like, there's just something about that, that, that this is what the Souls games are, is like, it's like this big fucking combat geography puzzle laid out before you, and I am so excited to put all the pieces in place, no matter how hard it gets. And I don't think Demon's Souls is as hard as Dark Souls uh, overall to me. Yeah. Uh, some of that is also I know how to play it, which I didn't when I started Dark Souls. So, like, the hardest Souls game will always be the first one you play, in a sense. Um, but still, like, the the challenge, it's just, it's, it, it. this one really defines for me how the challenge of the Souls games is fun. It is not punishing. It, it is punishing at times, but the punishment is fun. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, th- I mean, the punishment of it is more that, like... You know the you have to start back at that the archstone, which depending on what the last shortcut you unlocked was, might be not a big deal, or it might be well, fuck, that's gonna be like five to ten more minutes of me having to run through and figure out um where the fuck I was. Like there is one where I got kind of the only time I feel like I got annoyed at Demon Souls was falling down a pit in the Tower of Latria. And then starting back at the beginning and being like, I have no idea how the fuck to get back there. Because it's so <laughs> counterintuitive that there's no shortcut you unlock that means you, that stops you from having to go up from where you start. You always have to you start on the third floor and you always have to go up to the fourth floor before you can go down. And it feels yes. like there should be a shortcut you unlock that means you don't have to go up to go down. And it feels like that's one of those areas where I talk about like there are you can feel some of the rough edges and some of those designs where they I think they the team learned a little bit better where and how like some of the shortcuts make sense and how to kind of cut around edges. Cause sometimes the shortcuts in demon souls feel almost like an accident, like the shortcut in world two, two, that is basically you just go down a big coal. And it's like, you kind of skip almost that whole world. If you just go left instead of right and just very carefully fall down this big hole. And then you can go right to where the flame lurker is. Um, and so like some of that stuff feels weird, um there's also the like and i think some of the combat and stuff like that in demon souls definitely does not feel as challenging i think partially because they like you can cheese things a lot easier especially if i'm not using magic but this game is kind of infamous for if you start as the royal um you start with the soul arrow spell and a uh, ring that recharges your mana because they use a mana system instead of a like number of spells cast before you go to bonfire system like magic in this game is like kind of infamously completely broken um and then the health system also which is one of the only major things they modified for this remake 
is that in the original Demon Souls, the grass did not contribute to your overall equipment load. Um, so you could carry effectively infinite grass as much as you had found. Um, and now they made it so that grass actually weighs something. So I think they mostly did that for PvP because you could, in the old invasions, if people had enough grass and they had, like, had a strategy to be able to heal effectively, they would be immortal. Um, and now they've said, no, let's make it so you can still carry a shit ton of healing items, like, way more than any other, other of these games. Like, it's crazy how much you can heal. But there is a limit. You Eventually you have to be like, this is more than enough grass and this man can, can stuff in his pockets. Yes, yes, exactly. The grass system is interesting because they brought that. That's another thing they brought back for Dark Souls 2 that like just didn't make sense to me in Dark Souls 2 mm-hmm. because they still had the bonfire system and the Estus Flask was such a like elegant way to do it. Um, I like it in Demon's Souls. I actually think it's an interesting like part of the overall challenge and kind of makes sense to me in this game. Because um, the Estus Flask wouldn't make nearly as much sense in this game because you're not going from bonfire to bonfire yeah. so I think it makes perfect sense in Demon Souls in Dark Souls 2 you're still going from bonfire to bonfire so the lack of the Estus Flask is bizarre in that game to me yeah I agree the, yeah the, there's something about I th- it is something that like actually probably playing through Demon Souls now and like understanding what Souls was which that's like one of the main reasons why I fell off the game originally when I played it way way back when is that like it just didn't click i just kind of didn't understand what the game was doing because i didn't have the context and i think dark souls's structure is a little bit better at kind of inviting you into what the fuck this thing is and i think having that like seamless world um puts you in that sense of place a little bit better but yeah playing through demon souls it is making me reflect on dark souls 2 in a way that i think i'm kind of where you're at jonathan that like i think i've even though i've been very critical of dark souls 2 i think i've been like had been kind of gloves off with it and this demon souls being what it is and seeing that Dark Souls 2 was this, like, unsuccessful marriage of what of these, the first two games sort of, like, puts it in a worse light for me. But then it puts Demon Souls in a better light because it makes a lot of what it does feel more sort of fresh in the series because there's just some stuff that Demon Souls does with that structure and with some of the way it deals with items and stuff like that that none of the other games ever do. And I'm really glad that Bluepoint... You know, because I mean, Bluepoint, this is their methodology, so I would not have ever doubted they would do this. But I'm glad that Bluepoint is the team that got this remake because they understood that you have to make the fundamental game the same. You can't go in and make it more like Dark Souls. Like if they had put Estus Flasks into this game and tried to be like, well, that's what people are used to and they like the Estus Flask system. So let's put take that out of Dark Souls and put it into Demon Souls to try to like modernize it for the for the genre it would have like broken the game. And so there's something really nice about being able to appreciate all the original design decisions while having some of the friction shaved off mostly through just like sheer frame rate and the load times, because that to me is the biggest improvement of the game. And the thing that I think makes the structure of it work as good as it does here in this version is that you don't have like a minute plus long load every time you load into an archstone, which is how Demon Souls on the PS3 worked. It was a like massive load anytime you went into one of those areas. And that I think hurt the sense of everything being contained ultimately in the country or the nation of Bulletaria. And there is narrative connection between all these different places, which exists absolutely in the original game. But it's harder to feel that when everything is blocked by this harsh like you know paper brown screen that has like some vague lore bullshit written on it that you're like i don't know what any of this means and you're kind of just not looking at it or paying attention to it in this remake 
all that is just here's this like one second transition that happens through this like fog animation and so moving between the nexus and the different areas is so smooth and seamless that i think it makes everything feel like it exists broadly speaking in the same structure rather than it feeling like you're like okay time to shut down world one and now time to boot up world two which is what it playing it in, in on the ps3 kind of felt like i agree 100 percent, and it also just makes me want to engage with the game more yeah you know like so for instance there's this whole system where the blacksmith who can do all the cool stuff is in world two mm-hmm. and but a lot of the stuff you need to like get to go use with the blacksmith, you need to get in other worlds. So I imagine that would have been very frustrating in the original game. But in oh, this yeah. game, like I feel just so incentivized of like if I'm working with my blacksmith and I'm like, oh, I'm out of souls. Well, I've got this farming spot over in 4-2 that I like to jump into. And so I will go back to the Nexus, go over to 4-2. Uh, I shoot the, the Reaper dude. I get my 5,000 souls that he drops. I run back to the Archstone, go back to the Nexus, go to World 2, go over to the blacksmith. And I've got the souls I need and I keep moving. And like... That sounds like it could be tedious, but what I just described, I can do in like under a minute flat, and that would probably have taken like 10 minutes with yeah. all the load times factored in on the PS3. I mean, it this game, maybe even more than Miles Morales, I think is a real example of how transformative to the act of playing these load times are. Because Miles Morales, it's like it's a nice convenience that there's no like long load into the game, that there's no long load on quick play or uh, quick travel, but it doesn't ultimately change how I play the game. Demon Souls, this changes how I play. Like I am getting more into like the system of creating some of the final big weapons with the Demon Souls than I ever did in Dark Souls, because yeah, no. it's just like yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like I'm having the exact same experience, um, and like. And for me having, like, because I do remember, because I, you know, I know I've never beat Demon's Souls. I did play it for, like, 10 to 15 hours. Like, it wasn't just I got through World 1 or, like, the first level and just was like, ah, I don't understand this. Like, I beat the first area of every one of the worlds in, on the PS3 version and then kind of just petered off of it. Um, so, like, I remember looking up stuff, being like, how the fuck does this work? Okay, so you have to go to, oh, but you can't use the blacksmith at the Nexus. There's the other blacksmith that's in the basement in Stonefang Tunnel. Okay, so if I want to make this cool bow with the lava bow or whatever, I have to go to him? Okay, and, and like that process just being so obnoxious and feeling like if I needed to like pick up like a couple thousand souls to upgrade my weapon or whatever, that just being a like, well, I'm just not going to bother with it because I, it's going to take me so long to load into the Shrine of Storms or wherever. Um, I might as well just continue playing the game. And when I have those sto- souls, I have those souls. And then that's what leads to the frustration of, in that instance, losing souls feels like so frustrating because you end up back at the Archstone and you go back to the Nexus and you still have nothing. And it's like, well, that weapon I wanted to upgrade, I still don't have the souls to upgrade because I just got killed. Um, and I lost my souls or whatever. Um, whereas here... I spent probably like 15 minutes last night just, I, I was like, okay, time to take a, like, stop. I don't have enough time to go through a new area. But I didn't want to stop playing the game, even though I know I should, because I should just go to bed. Um, and I just ended up playing. I thought, I was, oh, I'll just like two minutes. I'll really quickly, like, level up my Uchikatana. And I upgraded it, and I was like, 
oh, but like, I have almost enough materials to upgrade the next one. But if I get like 500 more souls, then I can buy the large sharp, sharpstone shard from that one dude in four or in two two. And so, oh, well, I can just go. And I actually needed more grass anyways because I used up a lot up with the flame lurker. So let me load into the one three and then go do my thing to get half worn grass. And then, and I just like went on this whole chain and I ended up with like my bow getting two levels higher and my sword getting two levels higher. And now I have a sick dagger that does like two times as much damage on a riposte as normal because I like leveled up a special chain for that. And, and it's the kind of shit that I never did that in these games. And I've played all of them. And I've never kind of done like done it that way. And there's something about Demon Souls having the load times be the way they are. I'm having a lot more fun experimenting with my loadout and my character setup and different ways to upgrade weapons. That generally speaking, these games, I just went, eh, let me just do the normal thing and just kind of not pay attention to it because it's too much of a hassle to do. And Demon Souls, it's still cryptic and you still have to kind of look up some of this shit to be like, what does marrowstone do what does this how does this affect this weapon if i do do this upgrade path it's not transparent in that stuff um but actually the doing the mechanical process of executing all of that feels so much more seamless now that i feel like i'm not being prevented from doing it just for like technical limitations on the system exactly yeah that's i, I talking about like going on a big long chain I do that all the time in this game where like I when especially when I've like finished a world, I've beaten a boss and like I'm jazzed but I still want to play. Like I don't want to I don't want to start like a whole new world because it's like that's too much work, but I just want to play more Demon Souls. Yeah. I just find myself I am just zipping around all the different worlds. I'm like I'm going to go here to get this thing and then I'm going to zip back here to the Nexus and grab a couple more arrows and I'm going to zip over here and it's just, you know, zipping back and forth all over the place. Uh and it's really fun and it does make the world feel more connected. It does give it this like like Dark Souls feel of like these places are all connected. I'm just getting there in a different way. Um, and it's really, it feels like something in the original vision of the team in 2009 has been unearthed by mm -hmm. taking away those load times, you know? Because I think all of that is in there. It was just kind of buried by technical restraints and those are no longer there. And so it's just... It's super fun. And like grinding, I've always enjoyed grinding in the Souls games because it is stupid and it is like cheesy and, and you there's just so many like clearly, like there are places built in to these games that are like like silly grinding places. And Demon Souls, they're like very transparent. There are yeah. a couple where it's like this exists to grind. And the thing is though, in the past, between every run, you would take a minute or more to load, depending on what you're loading in between, right? Um, but in this, it's just like, because uh, my first big grinding run I started doing was the one you talked about, Sean, where you go get your half moon grass from the two guys, uh, where the tower knight was. Then I had the one in 4-2 where you have, uh, the, the reaper dude, and I do that one. And then there is one, uh, near the end where when you beat the archdemon in world five, there is a phenomenal farming location. And in all of these, it's like the, the run I would be doing, like it would have taken so much longer to like get this to work. I feel like, um, and in this, it's just. Touch the archstone. We're back. Okay. Because that, that fog door, it does not matter what you're loading. It is always about two seconds of fog animation and then you're back. You know? Yeah. Like, effectively, I don't think the game is even, like, taking time to load. I think the fog animation is just there so something is there. You know? It's like, it, it's, it's an aesthetic thing. It's not just hiding a loading screen. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like it is, and it's the thing that I'm very excited to see what different games come up with to do that, you know, because there's something very elegant about Miles Morales' Fade to Black and Fade Back Up 
Um, which actually that reminds me, I did buy um, Spider-Man Remastered because they patched the game that you can now upload your PS4 save to it. So it's like, oh, I might as well like awesome. run around in there. And that game handles it the same way. And I was like, fuck, dude, it's just so it's just so classy feeling to just have the game fade out and then fade back up, and you're just there in wherever location you're teleporting to. Um, then Demon Souls goes for something that's a little bit more like, yeah, aesthetically in line with the rest of the game. Um, but it does. There's something about playing Demon Souls, um, and especially going between playing Demon Souls and playing Genshin Impact, um, which I like. I said has very good load times because it did get a specific patch to take advantage of the PS5. But it's still not a PS5 native game, so it's not. It's not the same level of faster load times. And there's there is a very clear old gen next gen divide. And for me, it's like the visuals of Demon Souls are like utterly fucking gorgeous. And we can talk about that with some of the areas and how good they look. Um, but like the main thing is that load time difference and, and the way that the game just sort of because it loads so fast, it just treats the load totally differently. Like it just doesn't feel like it's loading because it's a transition, not a loading screen. Um, and there's a big, I think, cognitive difference that you as the player experience because it's presented in this very different way. Exactly. I mean, you know, nicer graphics ultimately don't change how you play the game. They do in some senses if, like, you can pull off things you couldn't before. Uh, performance upgrades certainly can change how you play. But just like, you know, Demon's Souls looking nicer does not make you play Demon's Souls differently. Demon's Souls not having load times makes you play it differently. Yeah. And that's what feels next-gen. Absolutely. Um, and it is. We talked about this last week, but having really got, you know, like, devoured it... Um, it is so cool to have this next gen experience that like takes uh, makes use of so much of what the PS5 has, but is built on the bones of this like fucking masterpiece. And so it is this uncommonly good console launch game, you know. Uh, and it is both a showcase for the future of gaming and a really beautiful recreation of a major moment in the history of gaming. Uh, it's incredible and. You know, I think we should talk about the graphics. Blue Point, I don't think, can be commended enough for the utter aesthetic triumph that is this game. And I know some people don't like every aspect of the remake that they've done, but like uh, one, I have not played the entire PS3 game, so I don't have those preconceived notions. But like, you can't deny graphically, there's never been anything like this. This is this just feels like such a new experience. Like, just down to the way light casts on bricks when you're going through a little tunnel in a castle and it's it's literally breathtaking it's like i have never seen anything remotely like this playing a video game uh and it is just demon souls is just one moment after another um and i think it honestly it's not just a coat of paint the souls games the miyazaki formula is so much about atmosphere it is so much about like breathing in the mise-en-scene and the incredible aesthetics of this Demon Souls remake makes me do that more than in the other Souls games I've played, you know? And mm -hmm. it's just like, I feel like a part of this world because the world is so beautifully mounted. And it's not just the visuals, it's also the sound. This has some of the best sound design I've ever heard in a game. Um, it's it's an incredible achievement that, that Bluepoint has pulled off here, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Because I've, you know, I've seen the like screenshots going around Twitter of people being like, oh, I don't like they redesigned this element of this like one character or whatever. And it's like, I get it. I mean, I don't have to personally like this incredible reverence for the specific aesthetics of a Demon's Souls. Um, like I like the monster designs and everything, but but that game has a very PS3 like 
sparseness to its look um, and like the bad frame rate and all that. Like I've never had, um, and it's, you know, kind of infamous for having this very kind of like what people call the piss filter. Like it's got this just sort of like yellow green malaise over the image um, that is very of that period um, in terms of game aesthetics. And it's like, there's stuff I really like about the aesthetics of the original game. There's stuff I don't like about it. Um, and I think you can quibble about specific design choices on specific monsters or whatever. Um, but I think overall, the remake has, for me, breathed so much life into this experience. And it's and it's and there's an uncanny quality to it of occasionally stumbling across an area and remembering like, oh, right, no, I totally did this whole area. Like, I did, I completed Shrine of Storms, like what, 10 years ago when I played Demon's Souls for the first time? Um, and I guess it would have been like eight years ago since I played Demon's Souls for the first time. Um, and I've like, I've done this stuff before and I'll have this occasion like, this is the same area, but it feels like it's such a much more fuller realization of what like aesthetically is trying to happen. Um, I think there's a couple of areas you can point to. For me, I think probably the biggest one that is the biggest upgrade is the Shrine of Storms because now there's an actual storm um, and having the like rain and part of that is the sound and part of it is just like the graphical effects and everything is like wet in the overcast clouds um, and like the general bluish aesthetic that that area always had but then that being contrasted with like the harsh red fire I mean, some of that is like what HDR is able to deliver with like the brightness of the fire and stuff like that and having fucking lightning strike the tree as you walk through the gate at the beginning of the Shrine of Storms um, that stuff really just sort of brings the whole world together and there's like a holistic aesthetic achievement there um with just like it is it is both like a lot of the realism that is achieved but it is also still very stylized right like it's very over the top in like the mood it's expressing through its visuals um but being able to sort of ground that in like wet stone looks like wet stone right um a lot of the sort of like physical details of the world are so convincingly recreated um that yeah i feel like every single area i go to just feels so aesthetically transformed into what does feel to me like a very like honest and like genuine um reimagining of what those areas look like it doesn't feel to me like they are like changing dramatically what the aesthetics of demon souls are it feels like they are trying to evoke what demon souls was trying to evoke um partially by taking clear cues from later miyazaki games like it's clear that they looked at how did they deal with added detail in the world that you could have in Dark Souls 3 and Bloodborne when they went to the PS4? And how can we take some of the direction that they went aesthetically and use that to inform then how do we take the expanded technology we have to add detail into the world of the PS3 game? Because if they made the game today, if Miyazaki made Demon's Souls in 2020, the game wouldn't be this like sparse barren world because that's not actually like really what his aesthetic like design goals generally are. It's just at a certain point, at a certain point, the frame rate gets too bad, even for Miyazaki. So you have to pull shit out until the world feels barren, <laughs> right? Um, and yeah, there's just something about like the crispness of the world um, and all of the different worlds that all feel so aesthetically powerful um, in this game. Oh, absolutely. It's, it feels like, and I have less experience with the original game. I've played um, a little bit of, uh, Demon Souls. I basically played through some of the first area, though I didn't even get to like the phalanx because at that point, like the servers were off, and I just like I wasn't really feeling it. Um, 
So I don't really know what the original looks like, but it just feels like such a loving, lavish production. Like, I feel like you can feel the amount of respect Bluepoint has for the game through how much work has been put into all of it, you know? Like, I've seen some people compare this to, like, Halo Anniversary. It's not. It's, no, like, it's yeah. so much better than that. And, like, I have different feelings on Halo CE Anniversary because I have specific... I I have, like, the nitpicks of, like, I don't like their design choices in that. But also, like... That is a pretty simple overhaul and feels kind of rushed when you look at it. I don't think there's anything you can point to. Like, there are things you can point to in Demon's Souls and say, okay, this is a change and I like it or I dislike it. What I don't think you can say is this feels rushed and cheap, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you could say that about the Halo Anniversary games. Um, no, I mean, what, what I've just felt, Sean, because I have not played Dark Souls 3 or Bloodborne, so just keep that in mind. Those are the two I still have to get to, and I absolutely will because I want to. I just haven't gotten to those yet. But, like... There is this feeling of like, this is obviously the biggest production values that have ever been given to a From Software title. And seeing sort of the the aesthetic underlying kind of vision and sense of scale and scope that is there in these games, especially these early ones, that was not fully realized for technical, for budgetary, for whatever reasons there were... Um, like the Archdemon in the Shrine of Storms, when you get there... Uh, I don't know what they did on the original PS3, but it could not have been what they pulled off on the PS5. Because what they pulled off on the PS5, it's not a difficult boss fight, but it is one of the most awe-inspiring boss fights I've ever seen. Yeah. And what they pulled off with it, it's like, oh my god, I'm just, I feel like, I feel like I'm lit. Because like, I feel like Demon Souls, Dark Souls, Dark Souls 2 to an extent, those games like in their original forms evoke a lot to me. And they, they inspire like a lot of imagination. And I feel like Demon Souls, I'm playing in my imagination of what the larger world of that game is. Does that make sense, Sean? Yeah, because I, I have not gotten to where you are or where that is in this remake, but I know exactly, I know the boss fight you're talking about. Yeah. Um, partially because they reference it very directly in Dark Souls 3, which is dark, because Dark Souls 3 is kind of like a best of the franchise sort of game. Um, and yeah, that's one of the ones I'm like really excited by. You get like a brief glimpse of it. I remember in one of the early trailers and I was like, I can't wait to see this fucking boss. Cause it's one of the coolest things in demon souls. Um, and for me, like the big test of have they managed to, I think, replicate what was effective about the aesthetic design of the original game with the remake was, um, the beginning of the tower of Latria in that first area of the tower of Latria, which is to me, like the, the thing about Demon Souls that was when I played it originally was the most impressive part of it. Um, and I think is like one of the enduring legacies of Demon Souls that again, is something that they take and kind of do a remix of in Dark Souls 3 because they know the Tower of Latria is just this incredibly iconic area and the like labyrinthine prison you move through and then the uh, mind flares with their fucking ringing bells and the merchant of that area, which is a noble woman that when you that you have this like haunting operatic like female vocals playing throughout the whole area and then you stumble into her cell and all of a sudden the vocals stop because you realize she was actually singing it like it was diegetic in the world and because it's like echoing around and it's just such a haunting area and it was to me like the thing about the aesthetic design of the ps3 game that was the most successful partially because it's like contained it's dark and so it plays to sort of like the technical limitations of the system they were able to do more with it um and kind of evoke more of that mood more effectively than they could like the more open areas in the bulletaria or the shrine of storms and stuff like that um but playing through the fucking tower of latria on the remake it it, it evokes and then i think enhances all those elements like the design choice to have 
lightning flash in the sky in that area to illuminate for like a brief instance the area around you while still keeping the whole area like oppressively dark um, and unsettling with like the weird like green fog that comes off of those like um, incense holders or whatever that shit is. Um, like it captures that mood so well while enhancing it with the other elements they can do. And that's where like the sound design you talked about earlier with like the echo of like being in this m massive prison. Uh, it's just so fucking good um, all the way through. Yeah, no, I think the Tower of Latria is the best part of the game from what I've mm -hmm. played so far. Um, certainly on that design level, like it's exactly what you say. You can feel the entire like Souls series being born in that area. That really does feel like where it ultimately like most strongly comes together of you can just, it immediately evokes several areas from Dark Souls. I think it evokes a lot in Sekiro. Mm -hmm. I think takes a lot from like that kind of area. Um, and you can just feel that. And like, I also think it's the most graphically stunning in this remake. Like yeah. uh, everything they do with, because particularly I think the most impressive thing in the Demon Souls remake is the lighting. The lighting is unreal. It is like no game console could do this before. And most games like on PC wouldn't do anything like this because it's just so crazy and you like it's so bespoke to like what the PS5 can do, the way it like casts light and shadow on everything and everything is so sculptural. And they talk about this in, in all the di different digital foundry breakdowns that are out now, but like the amount of tessellation in the environment, which is to say how much detail you have on every surface. Um, most of these surfaces are just completely flat on the PS3, but they are all molded and three-dimensional and the bricks like have things that like stick out and jut out and so there's so many crevices for that light to go in it feels so like textural and haptic I feel like um and no I the Tower of Latria is genuinely very challenging and it is a maze and you feel like a rat in a fucking maze but in the best way in the way that like okay so there was a there was a article on Kotaku this week that was explaining all the ways like Demon Souls is delightfully challenging mm -hmm. and they explained some of those things and then there were all these comments from people who have never played Souls games being like man I hate when people talk about this because every time I hear it I'm like why would anyone want to play this this sounds like the game is just trolling you and I'm like they are but it's so good <laughs> and it's like this is the Tower of Latria to me defines how it is difficult to recommend Souls to someone because you just have to experience it and I know that because I was on this podcast for many years, a soul's virgin, hearing Sean talk about it and not fully believing you that it was good because it sounded annoying. And you know what? If I describe to you the first boss of the Tower of Latria, which is this, this witch who won the boss fight. I actually think the boss fight is very cool. It can yeah, be a little like annoying because she can, she can split into like five bodies. And you do all that and you win. And then nothing happens. And nothing happens. And you're like, what, ha what did I do? What did I do wrong? And you leave. And then you finally look it up on your phone. And you find out that guy you met earlier who was just this caster just hanging around. And he said, hey, I'm not your enemy. And he didn't hurt me. So I didn't kill him. Uh-oh. If you don't kill that guy, <laughs> then, the, then the witch will not disappear. And so you have to go backtrack and find him and brutally murder him. And then go do the boss fight again. And now you can proceed. I know that if you have not played Souls, that sounds like stupid, trolly bullshit. And it's genuinely, genuinely one of my favorite things I've ever done in a game. It is so... I howled with laughter when I realized what they were doing. The Souls games are funny. And there's something about the way the Tower of Latria is this big maze. It is genuinely difficult. Those 
fucking wizard dudes with the squid heads are terrifying and they always scare me no matter how good I get at working around them. And it is gothic and scary and oppressive and big and suggests all this lore and darkness and decay. And it is also deeply funny. Yeah. And there's something about that mix of the horror and the sense of humor that like that is where Miyazaki kind of lives to me. Yeah, I love when you get all the way down to the bottom of the Tower of Latria and then you get this like Resident Evil ass cutscene where it shows a giant statue that like unfolds and just shoots yes. an infinite number of arrows that you have to sneak around and turn off. It's like this fucking like it's it's just like that moment in Resident Evil 4 where the giant statue comes to life and like chases after you. Just like this is like ridiculous, but it but it still like fits into the world in this like crazy fucking way that yeah i'm with you like there's something funny and this like this balance of the tone of like the tower of latria is by far or i guess you have the valley of defilement that's also extremely oppressive but, but that's oppressive because of like the poison kind of element of it like the tower of latria is like just psychologically oppressive because you're also running into these like naked like emaciated prisoners that some of them attack you because they have daggers and some of them just like i mean you can kill them and the game's not going to stop you from killing them but they just kind of walk up and they just, like, put their hands up and they're, you know, they can't talk because they've been tortured for, like, an eternity. Some of them are fucking, like, trapped in just, like, giant clay pots and it's, like, fucked up. And then you have, yeah, crazy squid mind flayer dudes walking around with bells that paralyze you and just, like, suck your brains out of your head. Um, it's a fucked up area that also, like, has, like, these weird sort of, like, almost, like, kind of meta jokes. Like, that's where, like I said earlier... Like, the one moment I got frustrated with the game was when I fell down a fucking hole because the area is so dark you can't see the stupid fucking <laughs> hole in the ground. And everybody falls down that hole. Um, I know. I know exactly what you're talking about. I did it too. Yeah, because because it's designed to make you fall down it, right? Like it, it's, Yes. It's the thing that, like, when the Souls games work, part of what makes them work is, like, you have so much freedom to, like, they are, like, very non-linear in most of their design elements, but they are designed so well to get in your head that even when you feel like you know them, and because again, I've played all of these fucking games, like like I've played some of them multiple times at this point. If there's anyone who understands how to play these games, it's me. And yet I still, I've seen this game be played. I played through that area before. I fell down that fucking hole eight years ago. I did not remember it was there. And the game is so well designed to lead you where it wants you to go and make you feel and think what you want to think. That even when you think you have seen it all and done it all and you understand these games perfectly and they're not going to be able to surprise you, they still fucking do. Yeah, and... I just, I think overall, so the, the Tower of Latria, like the other areas, has two big levels and then the Archdemon. And I have not done the Archdemon yet, but I've done the two big levels, including the Maneater, who is the, that's the boss in this game that like took me several days. We can talk about that. Um, but I have done those two levels and I think those two levels, for one, it's the, it's the only area in this game where I feel like one of the levels is not like slightly weaker than the other. Like they're both just absolute masterpieces mm -hmm. and they're so good. They might just be my favorite area in any of the souls games I've played. And I, again, I haven't played bloodborne or three, but like dark souls overall, I probably like more as a game, but I don't know if there's any one area of dark souls. I think the closest would be the, um, what do you call it? The, the castle in the sky that you uh, go to. Orlando. And Orlando, yeah, I think Anne Orlando comes close to me. That that like climaxes with Ornstein and Smog. Um, I love that one, but I think it, that 
that and Tower of Latria would be in some position my like number one and number two areas in the Souls games that I've seen so far um, because both sides of the Tower of Latria because that first one where you're in the prison is amazing and then this is also this is also something that I feel like the other worlds don't do as well is they're so differentiated because the second area is your way up high above the towers and it is aesthetically it very clearly is the next part of this world but it is completely different mechanically because there's these big gargoyles you're fighting and you have to go up you have to find these two towers and like get rid of this giant pulsating beating heart mm -hmm. thing in the middle um, but to do it you have to go up this one tower then you have to like get in a cage and go down into this like swampy area and and then it all culminates in the man-eater boss which is really tough but also getting to the man-eater boss you have to go up this like infinite stair loop that looks so cool oh my god I, Tower of Latria is like just genuinely, all of it is some of the best stuff I've ever played in a video game, period. It is so good. And I like all the other areas of Demon's Souls very much, but it is like the clear, this is what makes this game a masterpiece. Yeah, it's like, it is the thing that um, you really should play Bloodborne, Jonathan, because I feel like... I know, I need yeah, to. Yeah, because the Tower of Latria is like a clear inspiration with like like the gothic like weird sort of vaguely lovecrafty thing that like you know because the mind flares are a little like cthulhu dudes right so it's very much yep. like playing in that same space um that then eventually goes kind of a whole hog on with bloodborne but yeah no it is yeah it's it's a phenomenal yeah. game tower of latria is my favorite area i also really love the shrine of storms um love the shrine of storms which i, I there's something about like i don't know if i love that i don't remember really like that area making a huge impression on me originally um, but there's something about it here, like, like I just adore, like, I love what they've done, like, making the, like, weird flying manta rays feel more, like, real to me. There was something about them that, that struck me as very goofy when I played the PS3 game, um, because it just seemed ridiculous. Uh, and here they, like, feel like they should exist in that world. And I think it's part of, like, the aesthetic overhaul has grounded some of those slightly more, like, absurd elements that make them, like, fit into the overall design aesthetic. Um, so I like the weird giant flying manta rays that just shoot weird like crystal bullets from you from on high. Um, and that's one of the reasons yes. why I like playing a dex build is that if you're not playing a dex build, you don't have a lot of d tools to kill those things. But if you've got a good arrow or bow and arrow, you can just fucking shoot those things right out of the sky. And, like, fuck off. Oh, yeah. That's what I do. Uh, um, yeah, we should talk about what builds we're playing in a second. But yes, the Shrine of Storms I also think is great. I think level one of Shrine of Storms is one of the best parts of the game. Mm -hmm. um, that one, it's also like, it's a bitch. It is so hard, and I love it. It's like unraveling that entire world was one of the most stressful parts of this game for me, and I loved it. I thought the second part was the challenge felt more annoying to me. There's a lot of like kind of trolly elements to that one, I think. Uh, and then the Archdemon in that one is just phenomenal. We already talked about it. So anyway, love all of that. Um, in terms of other areas, um, World 1, all the Boletaria stuff, I think is fantastic. Yeah. It's very, like, that's the world that, like, okay, this is what Dark Souls becomes, you know? If, like, World, if the if the Tower of Latria is Bloodborne, then I think Boletaria is, like, very clearly Dark Souls. Um, and there's a lot of, like, Anor Londo stuff, I feel like, in that one. But it's very good. The Tower Knight is not a super tough boss, but in this version, God, it's cool. It's very fucking cool. Yeah, it is also, definitely. Because they, they always did the thing where when you hit him at the feet, like, they start spurting, like, spirit juice, whatever the fuck that is, like, that he's, like, animated by. Yeah. There's something about it here that just, like, that's one of those sound effects they get that just feels so perfectly tuned of just, like, popping yeah. a fucking cork and a wine bottle or something, and then just, like, this, like, spirit energy starts pouring out of his ankle. 
Oh my god, it's so good. Uh, and then also World 1 has all the stuff with the dragons. Mm-hmm. And man, oh man, that was that was maybe the most powerful, like, oh my god, this is a new console moment for me mm-hmm. in terms of the graphics and stuff, was I had my nice Bluetooth headphones on. I had the best way to play this game is turn off all the lights, be in the dark, have headphones on, and just be in it. And that's how I've been playing it uh, at night. And just like that first moment where you see the dragon like swoop overhead and then burn the entire bridge ahead of you. And then in World uh, 1-2 when you start to realize that, oh shit, what I have to do is time my runs across this bridge to the dragon's fire. It is such an amazing set piece. Um, and I, oh my god, it's, and all the like HDR with the fire is some of the coolest color stuff they do. Man alive. I was almost kind of sad when I did eventually kill the dragon so I could get a pure white tendency in that world. Mm-hmm. And um, I was a little sad when he was gone because the fire stuff was so cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I Yes, I. that was one of my big... I have not changed that much as a person over these eight years was when I was like, am I really going to spend ten fucking minutes just standing here shooting arrows at this fucking dragon like I did yep. eight years ago? I didn't even finish the game when I played eight years ago. But I saw that you got a thing if you shot the dragon... And I was like, I'm going to shoot that dragon. And I'm here. I'm like, I know that with the character I'm playing, I don't even need any of the fucking items I'm going to get. Well, I'm still going to shoot him with it. I'm still going to stand here and spend 10 minutes shooting him with these fucking arrows. Yes. At the point I did it, I had some white arrows, I think. And those mm-hmm. took him down really fast. It didn't, I don't know if it even took me 10 whole minutes. Um, yeah, I, I, yeah, I had like a level three longbow and just shot him with normal arrows. But I just yeah. bought this one. Of the, you can buy arrows so cheap. I just had like 700 of them. Like, I'm just going to stand here and I'm going to put on a podcast and I'm going to turn off the adaptive triggers to just to make it faster to pull. I'm just going to sit here and just like every like four <laughs> seconds where I was just like one, two, three, four, shoot the arrow. One, two, three, four, shoot yep. the arrow. And that's what I did. It's weirdly, it's weirdly meditative. Yeah. Um, okay, other worlds. Uh, World 5, the Valley of Defilement, is the pure id of Miyazaki's inner troll. Mm-hmm. Because that world is just... I actually find it very funny. Because it is like, literally, you start that world, you step forward, and you fall off a cliff. Because what you're supposed to do is actually climb up these stairs that are behind you. <laughs> it is so It is so mean. And that entire area... It's like, it's hard in the sense of there's just a million... There's like no individual elements that are super tough... But there are a million slightly hard elements that like pile on and it's like, it's just, it's, I find it very funny. And then the second area of that one is, is where you're having to move through all the sludge and the slime in the water. And I actually think that's a pretty good area. It's, and it does not have the thing that like in Dark Souls, you could get the ring back in the prison that would allow you to go through Blight Town unencumbered in water. There's nothing like that in Demon Souls. You are fully encumbered in water uh, and it is tough, but I actually really wound up enjoying that world a lot. And then the final, the final boss of World 5, I really like. It's, it's more conceptual than any other boss Mm -hmm. it's very weird um but it's really cool and like the staging of it is awesome um world two is the only one i feel like i don't fully love although there's parts of it i think the first level of world two is pretty pretty good i just don't find it as distinctive as some of the other ones the all the stone fang tunnel stuff there is some very cool stuff in there though i agree yeah i think world two is like clearly the one that's the weakest like i i think two one is fine um, I just played through 2-2 last night and and fought the Flame Lurker, and I just kind of found a lot of that area tedious. Um, yeah. Just because it's a lot of like, okay, here's an enemy that just has a shit ton of health. Okay, let me just sit here and hit it over and over with my sword or like kind of try to like go in the tunnels, navigate around it. Like there's good stuff in there, but it doesn't feel totally like fine-tuned quite right. Uh, yeah, um, I agree. Yeah. 
2-2, you like really have to have something with magic because those enemies just are such bullet sponges if you don't have a weapon. Like I used the Crescent Falchion there and that takes them down much faster. But even then, some of them are very spongy. Uh, although I think the Flame Lurker is a really cool boss. I liked that one. Yeah, I found fighting him kind of because I didn't even die to him. It was just say like, okay, we're just gonna... There's another like... He just has like a little bit too much health and like... It's one of those where when you play Bloodborne and then especially Sekudo, you just get so spoiled on how good they get with boss fights later mm-hmm. that it's like the Flame Lurker has like three, maybe four attacks and they're all kind of very similar. It's just like, okay, I, I, I think there's something about like Sekido especially having the like clarity, the like precise clarity of what you can and cannot block and what you can and cannot parry that like... I've been trying to do more parry stuff in Demon Souls, and I'm, like, way better at it than I've ever been in any of the Souls games, I think, because I've, like, learned the timing a little bit better. Um, but it, but it, I'm constantly reminded of why I never really engaged with that system much in Dark Souls or 2 or 3 um, is because it's just, like, sometimes you just have no idea, is this a thing I can parry or not? Like, did I fuck up the parry by mistiming it, or is it just an attack that cannot be parried because there are lots of attacks that can't be parried? And so some of that stuff with, like, some of those enemies that feel... Because Flame Lurker feels like a very simplistic version of a Bloodborne boss. But a Bloodborne has the gun parry mechanic that makes those kinds of boss fights way more interesting. And so that's one of those areas where I feel like it's good for what it is. But I've played versions of this boss that are so much fucking better that it's kind of tedious to go back to this, like, way more kind of simplified version of what they do in the later games. Yeah, and I guess I don't have that problem because I haven't played Bloodborne. Um, I agree. It's not like the... It, that's one of the ones that is hard for me to separate the like actual underlying boss design from the just crazy cool aesthetics mm-hmm. that Bluepoint has added because you can't deny he's a cool-looking boss. Yes, he's... Yeah, I really... They, they really kind of glammed up that cutscene that he has when he jumps out. And it's just like, oh, look so at this good. fucking flame ape gorilla man thing, whatever the fuck he is. I mean, really, all the bosses, even if they're not that hard... I, or if their underlying design isn't that interesting, conceptually, I find most of the bosses in this game really cool. Like mm-hmm. the the old hero who is blind and like emaciated, and you can sneak around him. Or um, in in the Valley of Defilement, there's one that is like a lady made of fucking like bugs and stuff that looks like something from like a Tim Burton stop motion thing. Um, there's just there's so many cool ones that I feel like are conceptually really interesting and. Like, I feel like they would do a better job in later games maybe mixing the conceptual with the design elements. But you yeah. can see the seeds of that there, and it's it's really fun. Um, and then the Archdemons are very conceptual in cool ways. I have two more of those to do. But anyway, um, yeah, what kind of build are you playing? Um, the same build I always play, Jonathan. I have my Uchigatana um, and my Kite Shield uh, and my Bow and Arrow. And then I am now at the point where I got the ring that allows you to like increase your equipment load and i have my strength up enough that i have on like medium level armor with like a couple of light armor pieces um to get like to craft my whole look that i've got going on um because i always play these games exact same except for one thing i've now added in is um my lethal secret dagger um because i got the secret dagger from the tower of latria and then if you upgrade that with marrow stone um, you at the special blacksmith, you can go down this lethal tree with dagger weapons that specifically just increase its amount of damage when you do parries or you do backstabs. And so that is now like a new thing I've added into the mix um, because I'm trying to do more parry stuff and the parries with that dagger do so much fucking damage. Um, and that is one area where they also blue point when I kind of above and beyond the call of duty 
in recreating this game is the new animations they have done for all the repasts and the backstabs are so good. They're um, so good. Yeah, and the have, sounds. Oh yeah. The sound design when you stab someone in the back with the surprise attacks. And if you're playing this uh, without headphones, what it'll do is it'll put that sound through the controller, and it is the gnarliest, grossest. Like it sounds like someone took like a big slab of meat into the Foley studio and just started hitting it with different knives because that's what it sounds like, and it is. I love it. It is gnarly as hell. Yeah, they're very gnarly. They're like really like the the Uchi Gatana, like the whole katana class of weapons. Because every class of weapons now has a unique backstab and riposte animation, um, which I think some of them did in the original game, but definitely not this many. Um, and the ones that are here are all like updated and modified. Um, the katana class weapon ones are very very cool. He does a little like flick at the end to flick blood off the sword, and it's like that's very good little touch. Um, but I would definitely recommend people playing this game to go and just load into World 1-1 with, like, a just, like, load up on, like, all the different weapon types and just go through and see all the animations and not just see them but, like, do them because there's something way more satisfying about actually doing it rather than just seeing a YouTube video of them because they are very fucking good. Um, particularly, don't sleep on the fist weapons ones because those are kind of maybe the best. Like, I'm never <laughs> going to use a fist weapon in a Dark Souls game because they seem shitty. Um, because one thing you really want to have is some like some amount of reach with your attacks. But when you do the repost or the backstabs, you just beat the shit out of these dudes with your fucking fist. <laughs> it's like, Jesus Christ, it's fucked up looking, but it's great. Oh, I love it. I love it so much. Um, so I have been playing a very similar build to what I did in Dark Souls 1. Which is, I started as a hunter and had my uh, axe, um, my I think hunting axe. What are they? No, it's not. It's not a great axe. It's a something else axe. Um, but anyway, hand axe. Uh, and I, no, it's not a hand axe, uh, and it's not a great axe. Is it? Okay it might just be hunting. I think it's maybe just a hunting axe. It might be a hunting axe. I, I didn't. Okay. I didn't play Any as a hunter. Okay, so anyway, um, but I used an axe for a lot of Dark Souls 1 also, uh, and I like the axe because it is big and heavy and does a lot of damage, but like the way its timing works with the timing of a lot of enemies, I just like instinctively I feel it really well. Um, so anyway, I was playing with that for the most part. I've also had a compound long bow and all my arrows, and I've been upgrading all this stuff. I started with the heater shield, then I found something, the spike shield, which is this, like, gnarly, like, metal shield with all these spikes, and it's kind of, it's got the same thing. It's 100% block, but it's just, it's it's better at everything, and it, it um, levels pretty easily with everything else. So I've been doing that. Um, I had, at one point, I found some chainmail armor that I really liked, and I wanted to be able to use that, so I just went and farmed souls for about half an hour, and then I leveled my endurance to like a crazy level so I could put it all on and still have the quick roll. Um, and that actually helped later, because later in the game, once I started getting into the whole system of crafting the like final weapons from all the demon souls, mm -hmm. uh, I wound up creating the Dozer Axe, which is this giant axe that weighs 22 pounds, so it takes up a lot of your equip load. And it is this, you have to use a Great Axe level 6 plus one of the Demon Souls. I forget which demon it is. Um, and the Great Axe plus 6 actually had everything I needed right off the bat. So I just did that really quick. And then I made this. And the Dozer Axe has, Sean, the reason I was attracted to it is it has 320 attack. Jesus. It is insanely powerful. But it is this gigantic, you should go look at it because it's fucking hilarious. It's like bigger than the guy in the game. And you have to have a strength of 30 to use it one-handed. So I also then went and... Well, actually, uh, after uh, I beat the Archdemon in World 4, you wind up being able to farm souls really easily. So I got my strength up really fast. Um, and then 
this axe I'm actually now using is like my axe, like one handed with a shield. And then I have some uh, assassin's armor and I am all still under the 50% weight. So I feel like I am utterly breaking the fucking game at this mm-hmm. point because that axe is ludicrous. It's this big 22 pound thing. It's not even sharp. It's just the axe is like this giant thing. And the, uh, the sharp end of it is actually this big curved thing. It's more like a hammer in the shape of an axe and you just beat people to death with it. Um, but it is kind of amazing. It can kill a bunch of stuff in one hit. It actually made the Archdemon in World 5 uh, very easy because I just decimated the thing you need to fight there. Um, so that is like that is one of the things I'm having fun with. I also made the Lava Bow. I'm enjoying the Lava Bow. Um, so yeah. And then I kind of went through the list and anything... And then I wound up because I needed a bunch of souls to get that strength up. Any of the souls for like weapons I knew I was never going to use, I wound up like using those souls and just mm-hmm. taking the souls. But I still have a couple that I'm saving to use um, that I want to make some weapons with. But yeah, it's uh, it's so much fun, Sean. Yeah, I just ate all the demon souls I got because it was like there's there the Uchi Gatana is the weapon for me in the Dark Souls games. It has like and I love he's <laughs> going back to Demon Souls all through all of these games. It has the exact same move set. They fucking never changed it because it's just perfect. When you do it one handed, the light attack is horizontal, long horizontal swipes. You can hit multiple enemies with it, and then the heavy attack one-handed is a piercing attack that is a thrust um, that does better damage. It's like, I can, you know, I have been one-shotting Crystal Lizards almost the entire game just with that one-shot heavy attack because it does piercing damage instead of slashing damage. And then two-handed, all the attacks are big overhead swings so they don't hit the walls, Um, and then they can also hit stuff that's in the air. Um, and then the R2, which is my favorite thing, the two-handed R2 attack with the Ichigatana, which is just, he just fucking stands there. It's basically the Ichimonji attack from Sekiro, um, where he just stands there, holds it above his head, and it's a huge wind-up, but he swings it down and does a shit ton of damage. And I always try to finish off a boss, boss with that, because I feel like I'm just stunting on them, that I'm going to finish you off with this, like, <laughs> ridiculous, stupid, like, it never has, like, a legitimate application other than if it's a slow-moving enemy that's coming towards you, you can anticipate it well. But I always like to finish them off with my big stupid giant slice that just takes like five seconds to pull off because it's like fuck you boss like i'm not i'm not just going to kill you i'm going to kill you and look cool doing it um so i always tell myself i'm going to try a different weapon i bought and downloaded dark souls remastered because it's 50 percent off on psn and i'm probably going to end up replaying that now because demon souls has got me in the mood again uh and i'm telling myself i'm going to try a different weapon I know I'm going to just kill the fucking merchant at the beginning of Dark Souls like I did when I first played that game. And he drops a fucking Uchigatana and you can get it in like 10 minutes. And then I was just like, well, this is the, this is the weapon I'm going to use. And I know I'm not going to be able to resist just going back to it because it's just how I like to play these fucking games. Absolutely. I actually just bought the, the whole Dark Souls trilogy, the like physical pack, because I still need to play three. And I didn't have remastered on PS4 yet. I, I had that on Switch. So, uh, And then two is in there also. Um, but anyway, I'm excited to play three and, and I want to play one again at some point. So anyway, uh, yeah, um, I think that's probably enough Demon Souls for now. This game is amazing. We'll probably talk a little bit more about it. You'll certainly hear about it on our year end podcast. This fucking game rocks, Sean. It's very good. Yeah. I'm extremely excited to, um, cause there's something very fun about knowing basic, like, cause I've forgotten most of what the details of any of the stuff, especially the latter half that I didn't personally play through with Demon Souls. But I remember some of the big moments. Like, I remember what most of the bosses are. And so it's fun for me, like, being able to sort of, like, be lost in a lot of the details. But knowing that's like, oh, shit, I can't wait to see what they do with this boss and, like, how good it looks. Um, like, it is. If, if you, like, played through Demon Souls and you're wondering, like, oh, do I really need to replay through this? Like, it is. 
it is so much fun seeing some of that shit you've seen before, like, and just how far video game graphics and, like, technical sense have come since uh, what it was, like, not even, like, a particularly good-looking PS3 game, and then now, like, the best-looking video game in the fucking world is Demon's Souls. It's a pretty good feeling. Oh, it's a pretty good feeling. It really speaks to how much... Uh... Miyazaki's vision has taken over gaming, doesn't it? Yeah. That this was like, if you read about the history of Demon's Souls, this was such a weird idea that like when he presented it to Sony, he had to like hide certain parts of what he wanted to do because he knew they wouldn't go for it. And now it is, as you say, the game with like the highest production values in the history of gaming. It's so crazy. It's very good. Oh, you want to talk about Miles Morales? Yes, let's talk about another video game that is very fucking good. Marvel Spider-Man Miles Morales. It's so good. I feel like we did all the gameplay discussion last week. I don't know if there's a ton more to do on that level. Um, as we said, it is Marvel Spider-Man, but it plays even better. And it has like even more, I feel like, expressive qualities with Miles as more of a character. But I really want to dig into the story here, Sean, because I think this is one of the best Spider-Man stories I've ever seen. Yeah. Particularly the ending. It is just beautiful and... Um, I love this game to death. I love Miles Morales as a character. After I finished this game, then I watched Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse again on 4K Blu-ray, which, Sean, go buy that if you have not yet. I've got good news for you, Jonathan. I already own it. Okay, good. Uh, Because the 4K Blu-ray of Spider-Verse is one of the best 4K Blu-rays money can buy. Yeah, Uh, I haven't watched the whole movie because I didn't have time, but I did get it in yesterday. And then I just was like, I'm just going to watch the What's Up Danger scene, and I'm going to watch like some of the shit at the very end just to like see it and see how much better. I first watched it with the Blu-ray version, and then I put it in the 4K Blu-ray because I wanted to compare it. And yeah, it, it looks very good. Oh, it's night and day. The Blu-ray yeah. just can't do the colors. It uh-huh. just literally, the colors of that movie are too complex. The Blu-ray looks like a DVD or something in mm-hmm. comparison. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, but I love Miles Morales. I love how... This game and Spider-Verse come at Miles Morales from really different angles, but they ultimately kind of come to a similar thematic push at the end, um, but also achieving it differently. And he's just, I feel like between this game and that movie, Miles is now one of my single favorite comic book characters. I love him. Yeah, no, he's he's so good. It's it's one of those things where, like, I really love, you know, the mod, the Marvel Cinematic Universe Spider-Man movies, and I like Tom Holland a lot. But it does, like, especially now looking at that choice that they made to do a young Peter Parker rather than do Miles Morales, it is looking like every year that goes by, that choice is reflected poorer and poorer of, like... Uh-huh. Because they, they basically did make Miles Morales, they just made him white and, like, took away some of, like, the specific, like, family setup and stuff that he has. Um, because, yeah, I feel like each major Miles Morales story we've gotten in, like, I need to dig more into the comic books because I've been reading a little bit of him, um, but, like, I now want to, like, actually do a proper read-through of his stuff. Um, Because, I mean, he comes out of Ultimate Spider-Man, which is one of my favorite comic books. Um, But, yeah, like, like every time I engage with that character in any way, in any of the mediums I've engaged with him in now, um, I always come out of it so invigorated and, like, feel, like, inspired by the sense of a lot of that we can reinvigorate and bring new life into like a very old genre that has a lot of very old tropes um, that has been so secluded for so long. And it's like the idea of having a like classical style superhero character that is new and is so successful as Miles Morales. Um, like the other one we have, I think we're going to get there now that she's getting her TV show is Kamala Khan is the other one. But it's like we had just gone so long without having like what felt like a brand new superhero character rather than 
new takes on uh, like existing superheroes that have been around for decades. Um, Miles Morales just has that quality to him, and he's so successful as a character. As we talked about last time, every team that it feels like approaches him um, is made better by the material because of how effective the character and like his story setup is and, and like the life of the character is so powerful. He's a character of the moment who like just feels modern in a way that other superheroes don't. Yeah. There is there's less you have to tweak to make Miles Morales feel like a 2020 character because he was made in like 2010, you know? It's like he's a recent he is an of the moment hero. Um and yeah, the 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 way this game approaches its story and makes it so personal and on the ground and like immediate for Miles is really beautifully done. And and obviously we both think the story in the original Insomniac game is phenomenal and it's one of the best Spider-Man stories I've seen. But like I feel like they've gotten even better at just the basics of storytelling here and the way they tie it all in and having the tinkerer be spoilers from here on out, Miles's buddy, uh Finn who was his like childhood friend and like this is the conflict now building up to the the final scene which is so phenomenal between the two of them and everything that happens and all in the context of Miles making Harlem his new home um what they've pulled off is is really stunning it's so well done yeah it, it's something where i feel like it's the story is heavily benefited by it being a much more streamlined game so it's like you just yeah. don't have like and you know i love the ps4 marvel spider-man but some of the story ends up being somewhat bogged down just by like the necessity of introducing all the mechanics in the world and the factions and and there's just so much stuff that marvel spider-man has to introduce and then kind of come up with narrative justifications for that miles morales because the ps4 game set all that groundwork miles morales just gets to skip all that and just jump into it and it's like you just start with most of the major powers um, like well, you start with almost all the major powers from the first game minus the gadgets that Miles doesn't have um, but it doesn't have to do like here's all the tower missions and it's like all like the collectibles are way more sort of like streamlined and cut down you don't have like here's all the different crime types you have to do um, it has some of that but it's like again all of those things that were in that the PS4 game is just sort of pared down to the bare essentials to get you this really streamlined effective experience um, that is so propulsive um, that I found, like, I mean, I basically, like I said earlier in the podcast, I more or less finished the game in, like, the day after we did the um, the last podcast recording, just because I was, like, I started doing the next story mission, and I was like, okay, I'm just on the train now, because I'm just, like, going, um, and there's something very satisfying about that, um, about the pace of the game is so effective. Oh, it's great. Like, I 100%ed it in about 16, 17 hours. Mm -hmm. And that was, like, mostly in, like, two days. I just fucking devoured this game because it is so devourable. It is so, as you say, streamlined and propulsive. And, like, there's really nothing you do in the game, even 100%ing it, that just feels like a waste of time. It's all, not all of it is, like, narrative-focused, but if you enjoy the basics of playing the game, it's all so fun. And then the stuff that is narrative-focused is so good, and so many of those collectible things, like... All of the little mementos, that the time capsules that have been left around, and you get him reflecting on Finn more, you know, and all the stuff with Uncle Aaron, and oh my god, I love the collectible that is all the uh, beats that yes. he and Uncle Aaron are making, um, all of the samples that they're finding in the world, just all these things that like make you feel like you're becoming more a part of Miles's world, and then going into these final missions that wind up being a, a really personal story for him. Um, in the same way that, like, in Spider-Man 1, you had, the, you know, this very personal story with Peter and Doc Ock, 
Um, but even more ramped up here because this is about his childhood friend, not this scientist dude he looked up to. Um, oh, it's so well done. And yeah, I think propulsive is a great word to use here. There, there, this, this is not an open world game that has even a hint of open world bloat to it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Like it, it has a lot of those same activities, but instead of there being like 10 hideouts, there's like three, or I guess there's like three of each type, right? So there's six right. total. Um, and, and, and they're all really good. Yeah, they're all really good. They're all like integrated well into the open world and they can all be approached for um, fully stealth or fully full combat rather than in the original game, you can only do the first wave stealth or whatever it was. Um, and then after that, you have to do full combat. Like there's just a lot of those lessons they learned from making the first game. They've integrated into this and the scale gets to be pulled back enough and the tools they're all familiar with and the world's already built that is just like, it is very much, you know, when they talked about this being like a Lost Legacy style game, like it very much has that quality to it. In the same way that the Lost Legacy is probably the best Uncharted game. This is, this is I mean, we only have the two, um, but this is the best of the two Insomniac Marvel Spider-Man games that we have. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, and, and just like the overall focus of the story of it being the story about both miles having to come into his own as his own spider-man he's the only he's new york's only spider-man as they say at the the, the like kind of at the intro point um and then that combined with his whole story of moving into harlem having to familiarize himself with that town while then also dealing with these issues from his past like all those different facets of the story all like come together really uh tightly like, I really love a lot of the sort of like smaller character scenes like at the near the beginning of the game when Finn first comes over for dinner um, and they're talking while they're washing dishes and Miles explaining why he doesn't like like why he feels like a fish out of water in Harlem and him saying like I don't like having to ask people for directions right like to my home um, and it's like a lot of that writing and the performances ground the character so effectively um, in similar ways that Marvel Spider-Man did with Peter that Peter, like all like the text conversations Peter has with MJ in the first game, like had that same quality. But here it's like, it feels a little bit more like grounded in universal um, because I think we've all had like this exact experience of whether you're moving or like you're just, you know, going to like a new school because you're going to high school, whatever it is, this feeling of like going from a place of extreme familiarity and comfort and then now growing up, you are put and it's not just one part of your life. Every part of your life now becomes, like, strange and unfamiliar that you have to, like, relearn everything again. Um, like, that whole process and combining that with the superhero side and the human side, which is the core of, like, a good Spider-Man story, like, they just completely nail it. Absolutely. And so many of those character moments, and I want to dig in on some of the characters because they're so compelling, but one of the things they do, you know, in, in the original Marvel Spider-Man on PS4... You had some of those like side missions with MJ and uh, Miles that I think you and I liked more than a lot of people did because yes, I, I think we enjoyed sequences those. with them. Yeah, yeah, um, and they don't have anything like that in here. But I feel like in the terms of the pace of the game, what they've replaced it with are these Naughty Dog esque sequences where you're just going around the house and like looking at things or the absolutely stunning sequence near the end where you play the flashback with Finn mm -hmm. where you are going through. Um, the science exhibit where it's like I know they wouldn't have been able to play Last of Us 2 before making this game but this feels like it was influenced by Last of Us 2 yeah. and how it does its flashback scenes which I think are maybe my favorite parts of Last of Us 2 um, just those are so good like I tweeted after that first scene where Miles comes home and you just explore his home and then Finn comes over and I said on Twitter 
this is one of the best scenes in either Spider-Man game. And it is. Yeah. It's because there's just this, um, and again, breaking up the pace, not through like another combat thing, but through just a living in the space moment. It's beautifully done. It's totally on par with something like Naughty Dog or like the beginning scene of Uncharted 4 where Nate is going around his house, the attic. Mm-hmm. It very much reminds me of that too. Yeah, and it's it's one thing like thinking of also from like the Naughty Dog influences there, but in terms of the Spider-Man influence, like obviously Spider-Verse was a huge influence on this game, but just as much of an influence I feel as the Sam Raimi movies um, because like that whole scene is like, is a less rainy version, but it is the like Thanksgiving scene from Spider-Man One, um, and you just—it's the Thanksgiving scene for Spider-Man One. It's just you don't know it's the Thanksgiving scene for Spider-Man One because you don't know that she's the villain yet. The first time you play the yeah. game, um, this this game actually has several big shout-outs to Sam Raimi, yeah. including the final scene of the game is the train scene from Spider-Man Two yeah. done beautifully. Well, we'll talk about that in a minute. But yeah, like that's that's something that I found like really powerful is like this fusion of that is like it's not just doing spider-verse which even if they just did spider-verse it would be like that's fine because that's a great 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 movie um but you know what else is a great 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 movie fucking spider-man 2 um and then like i think not just doing spider-verse but like doing their own thing by pulling influences from obviously the miles morales comic books and then the other like major spider-man touchstones which are the Raimi movies and now spider-verse um, them pulling all those together to create their own unique version of the character, which is very much what they incredibly successfully did with Peter in the PS4 game. Um, them doing that again here in a way that I almost was like kind of surprised, but I don't know why, but I like I didn't expect as much Raimi in here as there was um, because I think mm-hmm. it's even more reminiscent of some of those Raimi movies than, than the PS4 game was, which also directly quotes sequences and scenes from those movies. Like it does its own train scene. Um, but here, when when there's something about the when this game does it, it hits me really hard. Like that whole ending sequence hit me so hard, partially because it ha- like echoed so much of my own personal history with the character. But seeing it through this new lens of being like a, there's this feeling of like me being uh, tomorrow. I will be 28 years old. Um, which is like a weird thing to realize we're at the end of fucking November, Jonathan. When did th- when did that happen? Um, Happy birthday, Sean! Yes, thank you. I guess when this will go up, this will, this will be. Yes, this it is, is your. This is going out on your. This is Sean's birthday podcast. Yeah, this is the birthday cast. You only found out now, uh, two hours into it. Um, but there's something about we are old men, Jonathan, and like we are both five <laughs> years older than the Peter Parker in this version of the world in in the PS4 oh, God. version. Yeah, so we're old motherfuckers. Um, and there's something about like Peter Parker and specifically Ultimate, the original Ultimate Spider-Man Peter Parker, which that series started in 2000 or 2001. Um, that and the Raimi version were like the some of the main stuff that I grew up with before I went to some of the older comic books. Uh, and like that being like, this is a big part of my growing up and my being such a huge fan of Spider-Man. And there's something about me now being an old man who's now teaching kids who are at the age of Miles in the similar demographic as Miles because of the school I teach at has a very high uh, Hispanic student population. Um, And so it's like, I know a lot of teenagers who are a lot like Miles. And there's something like, I had a very emotional experience playing this game, particularly at the end, having this like recognition and alienation of both like, it is fundamentally the story that like is such a huge part of me and like my history with this character and the, like the stuff I like about this character and like my some of my own like self identity, um, but then also it's not my story anymore because it's now Miles's and this feeling of like passing on the tor- torch 
to this new character in this new generation um which is a lot of what um like the the experience of being an old white motherfucker playing this game feels like to me is like trying to pass the torch on like here's like the good stuff about spider-man take this and make it better um and that's i think like kind of like part of where this game leaves off is the sense of miles is now like will become like the true spider-man like he will kind of go forward and like improve upon the the foundation that peter and like us by extension have like built for him well you know this is something you brought up last time sean that i thought was a really canny observation which is that the game it's subtle but this game really does make peter seem kind of like a sad character yeah and it's it's there's something about like his utter inability to balance his life in a way miles actually kind of pulls off in this game Mm -hmm. like you don't get the sense that Miles is going to have an easy life going forward. Being Spider-Man is never easy, but neither does it have to be the the isolating torture that Peter has made it for himself. Like there's this scene, I think it's it's when you beat the game and you're flying you're, you 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 beat the game and inevitably you go zooming around the city because you have so much fun web-slinging. Yeah. And Peter Peter calls you up and he says, you know, now that he's back he says, you know, um, I'm still going to take another couple weeks off. I have to get my life back in balance. And he says, like, I just realized, like, I need a job. And there was something about that moment where it's like, at that moment, Miles feels more mature than Peter. You know what I mean? No, absolutely. I mean, it's like part of what this game does um, is it makes, it reflects on this version of Peter Parker. But that is also, I think, fairly representative of most versions of the character, particularly like, the Steve Ditko version as he grows up and goes to college and graduates and stuff, the older version of that character, it, it reflects on him in a way that makes him really interesting to me because, because like you're saying, like there's something kind of sad about his life. And there's something also like naive about him um, that like in, in something to talk about with this game is that it doesn't go like full, you know, all cops are bastards or whatever. Like it doesn't, it's not like trying to tear down the institution uh, which I kind of wish it did, but also a lot of that shit happened when this game was still like in like in development or nearing the end of its development for specifically for this year um, and this year's protests over the summer. But the story of this game is very much, um, while it's not like the American government and like the police, it is about like rich white people coming in and trying to exploit Harlem. And there's a great line at the end of the game where Miles says, like the reason why they did it here is because they thought they could get away with it because they thought that we were disposable. Um, and yeah. that's like why they did it uptown in Harlem rather than in Midtown because they couldn't get away with it there. Um, and there's something there about where you see that's like the gaps for Peter, that Peter wouldn't see it or understand it that way and maybe wouldn't be able to like combat the issue in the way that Miles, because he has the perspective that he has, that is more rooted in like the root of where these injustices actually are committed, that Miles is far better positioned as a character to actually deal with the like injustices of the world, rather than Peter has this very naive, I just go beat up the dude, the world will be saved. And I don't think Miles is like perfect at that. I think it has like the game has too much of a faith in institutions, which is part of an issue with like the superhero genre at large. But, like, where it does try to tackle it, it hits really hard for me of seeing Peter reflected in that way where Peter is always an imperfect character, but his imperfections are way more stark next to Miles, who is 
not as good as Peter in some ways, but is far better at him in sort of his clarity and seeing, I think, the world than what Peter has. Yeah. And, you know, like one of the things this game, again, without, it's fairly subtle. Like a lot of these themes are not things the game comes out and says, but I think one of the things it does with like the idea of the secret identity and that this is like an act of gospel for Peter that you just have to keep the mask on. And by the end, it kind of tears that down in that um, when the whole, because the big final scene is basically all of his Harlem neighbors realizing Miles is Spider-Man. And that is not a scary moment. It is a liberating moment. It is an empowering moment that he fully is able to take this mantle as the neighborhood, the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man because they know who he is and he is their neighbor. And that like creates this level of trust that they have like a, like a solidarity among the people, not among the institutions. Whereas keeping the mask on ultimately will always make Spider-Man this deputized agent of the cops in a sense, you know? Um, and, and I mean, one thing that is notable in this game is Miles does not have this relationship with the police that, that Peter has. His dad was a cop, but he's not going around calling Yuri, sending people to Rikers, talking about like, you're going to rot in a cell and that's funny. Um, part of that I think they've removed because they read, they got criticism from the 2018 game and realized, yeah, that's kind of, that's in bad taste. Yeah. And some of it is just like, I don't think Miles would quite be that guy. And I do think in future games, I'd love for them to explore more about like, what does it mean for his dad to have been a cop and a good cop who did a good job, but like, like his ties to that institution in New York, there would be a, there's a lot of meaty narrative potential there, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it, yeah. it is a thing where this game leaves off in such a way that it's like the game tells its whole complete story, but it also like, I mean, it very quickly put Spider-Man, which please just call the game Marvel Spider-Man. I so desperately, don't call it Marvel Spider-Man 2, please call it Spider-Man. I so desperately need that. Uh, it would be so good. But it sets up a, a dynamic, I think, I hope that they take up that seems so interesting, which is um, if you can tie it with the black suit stuff, which they sort of re-teased in the same way that they did in the first game, because they're obviously not like dealing with any of the Norman Osborn, Harry Osborn stuff but they tease the Venom symbiote stuff again, but now seeing it in the light of, well, we now have Miles as an established Spider-Man. And part of what the black suit Spider-Man story is, is exposing like the bad parts of Peter, um, like combining those two stories together. There's such a powerful potential. And then combining it with some of the stuff that you're saying, of, if I really would love for them to try to grapple more like full-throatedly with, um, the sort of some of the contradictions of Miles and like where we are in the world in terms of the relationship between the black community and the police and the institutions um, and like the government and all that. Like I don't, I'm not necessarily going in with like massive hopes that they're going to try to like dismantle the, like the institutions and all of that because it is also a Sony game and it is a superhero game and like the genre has certain expectations that it's hard for it to break from. But I think there's so much fertile ground here um, to really like push the boundaries in a way that this game does push the boundaries because one thing like that is like crazy to think about is that as much as like Demon's Souls is like the longer game and the bigger game and the one that like video game nerds are going to focus on the most because it's a Demon's Souls game like Marvel Spider-Man on the PS4 sold over 20 million copies at this point Mar Miles Morales is the premier launch game for the PS5 by far yes. in terms of like the public consciousness and to have the premier launch game of a new console be a game that both stars an Afro-Latino teenager 
Um, so it's like a black kid who also has Hispanic roots and they have him fucking speak Spanish and stuff. Have that be the main character. They don't shy away from it. They go whole hog in on his identity, but then also have um, like the Black Lives Matter mural that doesn't just exist in the world, but like a quest line takes you right there and you get it and like every anyone who's done that one of like the major side quest chains in the game has a fucking screenshot on their ps5 hard drive that has a black lives matter mural on it um the fact that that that's what's happening um with a sony launch game is crazy like i cannot like in the in the world where ubisoft um like is consistently insisting that their games are apolitical even when they literally frame Watch Dogs 3 as being a post-Brexit England they still tell you that it's apolitical and like that's the attitude that people have um that like this game can just come out on um, the way that it is it's not perfect with this politics but it is so much better than you would ever expect from a big AAA game that has like the level of pressure on it that this one has. I think it's like well worth remarking um, how notable that is and how like how happy it made me feel to see that as like they are not cowering behind um, a politicism or something to like disguise the character's identity or something that they're like fully committing to it. I mean, talking about identity, Sean, this is a world we live in where. Ubisoft still only puts the male version of the character on the cover, yeah. even though every year, year after year, everyone says the female version of the character in the new Assassin's Creed is the better character in a world where cyberpunk is also coming out with the dude on the front, yeah. even though you can also play as a lady. Uh, Mass, I, that Mass Effect trilogy, the remaster, when that comes out in the spring, it'll have male Shepard on it, even though nobody on Earth thinks Fem Shep is not the better Shep. This is just how they do it, and it is sexist goddamn horse shit that you can have. Yes, this is about a a black Afro-Latino kid. His identity is something he is proud of, he is shaped by. He lives in the game, and you get to live alongside him. The game invites you to live. Uh, no, it is important. It is, absolutely. Yeah, and, and, and about also, that like, every other side character other than Peter, who's only at the very beginning and end of the game, are also either Asian or black or Hispanic. Um, it's like yeah. the whole cast of characters, or the villain who's a white douchebag, um, played very effectively by Troy Baker. Um, yeah. It's just like I, you know, I, I know we've talked about like maybe Troy Baker's in too much stuff, um, but this was a very effective use of Troy Baker, like almost like playing up that he's Troy Baker playing this character. Oh, Oh, one hundred percent. Yeah, you're meant you're meant to know he's the bad guy the moment you hear his voice. Yeah, this motherfucker. Like, um, no, and you know one thing I think is interesting is. You know, this game was made after Spider-Verse, but the general, like, setup for Miles in these games was done concurrently with Spider-Verse. Mm -hmm. And there's this really nice, like, weird balance they pulled off where Spider-Verse is all about Miles and his dad. And this game, because his dad is dead, is all about Miles and his mom. And I like that between the two of those, you get one about the dad and one about the mom. Uh, and I really love their presentation of his mom in this game. And she's running for city council, and she's she's always speaking to him in Spanish. And that's just really, it's just really nice. Like, she's got all of her, like... Uh, like this was their this was their uh, grandmother's apartment, yeah. so there's a lot of that like heritage stuff in there. Um, it's really cool. Just the whole, but the whole cast of characters. I love the mom. I love Genki. Genki is uh, very clearly Ned in the Marvel movies is just Genki from the comics. Yeah, <laughs> but Genki is great uh, as the like the voice in your ear. I really enjoy Genki in this game. Um, I yeah. Uh, I love all the, the whole. Finn I love the, the with Genki. I love the ongoing like weird sub narrative of he's like designing a mobile game. Yes, um, and like he doesn't want Miles to play it because it's like not finished yet. 
Um, and like this like occasional thing that just keeps on coming up with your radio, radio conversations. And then at the end of the game, he's finally finished it. Uh, I, I really enjoyed those. Con- like, again, as someone who spends a lot of time around teenagers and like, um, we have a fairly good STEM program at the school I work at. So it's like, I definitely spend some time with like teenagers who are like into that kind of shit and are like doing video game design on their own and stuff. Like there's something they're not like. I mean, like, Miles and Genki are, like, like child geniuses, basically, because it's a comic book world, and they're going to, like, one of the best fake STEM schools in the world or whatever in, in the in universe. Um, you know, like, Finn is fucking designing, like, living matter, like, metal or whatever. She's basically building a fucking T-1000 in her garage or some shit. Um, so it's, like, not that level, but hearing those kinds of conversations, and there's something very, like, naturalistic to me. I feel like they've, they have captured the voice of those characters in the writing, and then the performances are also, like, so good. Um, yeah. it like it it registers as nerdy teenagers talking um, in a way that I think a lot of video games really struggle with because they're usually written by old white dudes. Um, and so having like because I know like some of the writers on this game are people like Evan Narcisse who he's old but he's black and he's a comic book writer and who's like written miles in other mediums as well. Um, so like having a writing a more diverse cast of writers that are more experienced with some of the stuff, um, I think has like really helped this game capture some of the specific tone it's going for. Absolutely. Um, and then I think the other major character we wanted, well, actually before we talk about Finn, there are some of the like side quest characters I really like. There's the uh, deaf girl mm-hmm. who Miles clearly like has a thing for. Um, and I love every scene with her. They are utterly delightful. I love that Miles takes ALS and he knows some sign language. Or ASL, yeah. sorry, ALS. ALS is a bad thing. Yeah. ASL is a good thing. <laughs> um, so sorry about that. But I love that there's some there's like signing in those scenes. Uh, oh, that, those are just delightful little moments. I felt. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the game is full of of little character moments like that. Yeah, then and, and, yeah. And and she gives you one of my favorite suits in the game, where uh, she gives you the scarf, and oh, so yeah. it creates the like the like winter outfit. And I played with that for a bunch of the game, and like even in cutscenes, it feels totally of a piece because I one hundred percent believe this Miles Morales would put that scarf on and web around the city with it. Yes, yeah, because because I like that it's it is his normal like classic Miles Morales outfit. It's just that he has like basically like yeah a little like Santa looking hat and and a scarf on, and it. It is, and the physics on the scarf are very good. Um, They're very good. Yes. Um, all right, and then there's Finn, who is the the big bad, but also your best friend. Uh, it, they did such a good job. Like when it when the game started out, and I saw that, I felt like maybe it was going to be a little rote, but it's not. It's a really well done version of. It's a trope, but it's it's done so well in this game. Yeah, and I think one thing this is an area where the game being like shorter and more focused really helps. It is they like they after that that first meeting there's a couple of stuff things that happen that it like telegraphs pretty hard that that's the direction it's going to go in and then it was a oh fuck are they going to spend like five hours or something of the game like teasing this out um which is like more the pacing of like the ps4 spider-man game and here it's like no like as soon as they start telegraphing it it's just in that whole bridge destruction scene where you find out um they just like cut that scene obviously out of the trailers um, but it was definitely, I was kind of dreading or rolling my eyes or like, oh, fuck, are they going to do this? They're going to like lead us on this like wild goose chase and not just give us like the whole turn. Um, and no, like they gave you the turn. Like that is basically the setup for the plot. Um, they just give it to you in like the first fourth or third of the game. Um, and, and I think that's one thing that helps it a lot is it doesn't beat around the bush. It like understands this is a trope. 
um, and just leans into it. And since it knows it's a trope, it doesn't have to spend a lot of time setting it up. It just is like, no, this is the kind of story we're doing. This is the dynamic we're doing with the protagonist and antagonist. And we're jumping into it. Like, let's just go. You understand what's going on. And because it's so streamlined, you also don't stay within one character dynamic for too long. Mm-hmm. So, like, the dynamics between them are constantly shifting and being renegotiated. And there's the part where Miles is kind of trying to go undercover, but he feels really bad about it. And then he comes out to her, and and she hates him, but then they work together. Like, you're not, like, stewing in one, like, convoluted plot turn for too long. There's There's none of, like, the... I feel like in a longer version of this game, in the 30-hour version of this game, there would be some wrench in the works somewhere where you would be stuck in something that felt kind of like convoluted to just elongate the plot, and they never have to do that. Yeah, exactly, yes. And so it does keep things fresh because it makes like their relationship is really messy and it gets to feel messy because it's constantly fluctuating on like what side are they on. Yep. The ending of the game, so the entire final mission and that sequence where you're in the big tower and you are fighting her, I think the Tinkerer boss fight at the end is phenomenal. Yeah. Like, actually, that's something, um, that was my only big complaint about the Insomniac game is I did not like the boss fights. I think the boss fights in this one are really good. I found them a lot better. Uh, and I thought the Tinkerer boss fight was phenomenal. Just as like a set piece, just like it is so shot through with emotion, it is such an impressive production. I have no idea how that scene runs on PS4 because it feels so crazy with all the light effects and particles and, oh, it's nuts. Um, and then the final cutscene where where Finn throws... Well, one, you get the scene where Miles goes up and tries to drain the reactor, which I realized that is the first trailer for Miles yes. Morales that we got at the summer is from the very end of the game. That's amazing that they pulled that off. Uh, but then Finn flying him up um, and she basically gets disintegrated. Um one just visually like god what a showcase for the ps5 but two man uh the way they take those characters into that emotional climax and i feel like the the follow-through they have on the big themes of the game is phenomenal yeah it, it is a similar thing that like their attitude towards the story in the first game as well of you know they kill aunt may at the end of that game like they're like they're going they're not restricting themselves, um, which I like that, like, you know, they, they are allowed to kill off characters because they're not, it's not an ongoing comic book series where you need to keep the Tinkerer alive because in three years someone might, might want to do, like, the Tinkerer Turns arc or something like that, which it was a comic book, even if you killed her, you'd still get the Tinkerer Turns arc in three years, to be fair. Um, but, they, but they just know this, like, the medium is different, so, like, adapting it into this medium, it's okay to kill off major characters because you're only going to get three four whatever games maybe a couple of the spinoffs out of this franchise and then eventually insomniac will move on to something else um but yeah yeah it's just a, a fantastic ending that as you say like it just fully goes where it needs to go with it um gives miles like his big heroic moment his spider-man 2 moment uh he's there without the mask and Haley like hands the mask to his mom and then his mom and puts the mask on miles and that's the scene I really wanted to talk about because when he's there without the mask and they have the mask being passed a la Spider-Man 2 and then the cops show up and, and all of the, the Harlem, or not the cops, but I guess it's the um, Troy Baker and his men, right? Uh, no, I think it's the police. It is the police. Yeah. Okay. And they show up and like all of the Harlem people block the path to Spider-Man and they say, this is our Spider-Man. Tears. I, I, I literally was moved to tears by that. I think it is a stunningly beautiful ending of the emotionality of what Miles has lost, but what he has also gained through his heroics and being a neighbor to these people. 
um, and that they all love him. And like, what is so important about that moment where he is unmasked is that he has done so much work for them, not as Spider-Man, that they love this kid outside of the costume. And when they see who he is inside the costume, they love him even more. Um, yeah, and and that also, stunningly beautiful. Like the whole costume is like basically destroyed. Like there's like he's got like the like spider emblem on the chest is almost like like fused into his chest. Like it's like scarred there almost. And I think it's important that he's exposed because like because part of the thing with Spider Man, like one of the things that makes his design incredibly unique, is that the character's costume covers him from head to toe. Um, and so like part of the thing that like some people like theorize about part of the appeal of spider-man this is something that spider-verse leans into is that you look at spider-man when he has the costume on you can imagine anybody be wearing that costume um it's actually a point there's like what it's part of like one of the montages in the beginning of um sam raimi's spider-man one is they have like that all those people talking about like who could he possibly be he could be anybody you can't know um but having that be stripped away and it's like it's not just anybody it's a black kid right that it's not that like you're so used to with peter parker that when the mask gets ripped off or the the like you know green goblin throws like a knife at him and it like cuts the arm that you can see he's white underneath um and seeing it's like no part of his identity is that he's also black um and that's like part of what makes him part of this community specifically um and having the costume be removed in some ways in that moment um, like that just like I think kind of helped like really land that and like deliver that home that's as part of his who is as part of his identity as well um, is really powerful um, I think it like uses the iconography of Spider-Man in a way that's incredibly powerful to me absolutely anything else we want to say about um, truly I would put this on the pedestal with Spider-Man 2 Spider-Verse and this are my three favorite Spider-Man things uh, and obviously I have not d delved into the comics to the degree you have, Sean, so I have less experience with it. But, um, you know, Spider-Man is one of my favorite characters, too, and I think those three things together are like the holy trinity of Spider-Man, at least non-comics media for me. Yeah, I would say I would agree that for, like, the multimedia stuff, um, like this, and then, like, this in concert with the PS4 game, because I think they exist Absolutely. well, like, in conversation with each other. And then again, it sets up, like... Man, if they if they follow like broadly like what I'm thinking of, and I laid out some of my my harebrained scheme two years ago when we talked about the first game, that like that I'm gonna say it again. I want to lay my claim. I really hope that they go here, like kill Peter at the end of the second game and make the third game Superior Spider-Man plus Miles Morales. Um, yes, and him Miles be the main Spider-Man, and then like Doc Ock, crazy Peter, Superior Spider-Man comes in as well. Um, but like I think I really hope that they because I, I i both love the interactions that peter and miles have of them that you get briefly of them being like on the same side like i adore that fucking cutscene at the end of the game where miles comes down upside down and he drinks the coffee um yes. and peter says man like i just can't get over that costume it's just so cool um and miles says you gotta be me and peter just sort of quietly says yeah you definitely do um and there's something about their interactions i love so much but i also really want them to over the course of the second game bring those characters more to a head and have them be more confrontational uh, because I think there's like things to be resolved between those two characters um, like in like a, almost kind of more of a meta way in looking at Spider-Man as a whole story and then like combining that with the fucking black suit story and being able to do the black suit story which I love but is also one of the most overdone Spider-Man stories because whenever you do Spider-Man you have to eventually do the black suit stuff 
combining that with Miles coming into his own fully as Spider-Man and being like a second legitimate fully accomplished Spider-Man in the city as well. Like there's so much interesting narrative material that while I think that right now Miles Morales is the best Spider-Man video game and like, and I'll just straight up say, I think I'm at the point where I think like the, this and the PS4 game are my favorite superhero games. Like I love the Arkham games, but this has overtaken them. Oh, these are better. These, there's no doubt. These are better. Yeah. These have overtaken those for me. Um, I think they have set up like what could be like a truly legendary sequel in Marvel's Spider-Man. Please title it that way. Which will also be fully ground up a PS5 game. Yes. Which, like, if they could do this much on a cross-gen game, Sean, who, boy, I don't even want to imagine it. Yeah. But, man, the PS5, Sean, launching with this Demon Souls and Astro's Playroom, that's, that's like an unfair amount of good first-party material. Yeah, it's really, it has been, it has been a good time uh, having been lucky it's, enough to get that PlayStation 5. It's a hell of a flex. All right. So finally today, Sean, would you like to talk a little bit about The Mandalorian on Disney Plus? It's so good, Jonathan. It's oh my so God. good. It's it's fucking stupid how good it is. Yeah. Like, I am fully in the camp now. I will say I just think The Mandalorian is the best thing in Star Wars since the original trilogy that I have seen. Uh, and I, you know I love the prequels. I am not a prequel hater. Uh, and I like The Last Jedi as well. But this is just better than all that, at least in live action. I have not seen enough of the animation to talk about that, although it is very clear now that The Mandalorian should probably be seen as part three yeah. of the Filoni-verse. Clone Wars, Rebels, and then Mandalorian is part three. Is that a fair analysis, Sean? Like, I'll just say that like the deeper we get in, the more convinced I am that if like you turn up the volume really high and you like lean in really close, you can just hear Filoni cackling maniacally in the background <laughs> as his crazy scheme starts coming together. Um, because yeah, I would say that for me, um, having watched all the other Filoni stuff, like I would say this is 100% in line with quality with like the best of the Clone Wars and the best of Rebels. Um, it's like a slightly different kind of thing because it's live action and they're like, so it's like, they're not as directly comparable. Um, but in terms of like the quality of achieving what it's trying to achieve and doing things with Star Wars that feels so... Both, like, it's, like, appealing exactly to the core of what Star Wars is while also doing stuff with the Star Wars you've never seen at the same time. Um, it's just so effective um, that, yeah, like, it is definitely after having the the uttered fucking disaster that was The Rise of Skywalker, um, having this is like, no, Star Wars can be good. It's okay. Like, those, that movie was <laughs> shit, um, but Star Wars can be good even under Disney. They can do it good um, because, man holy shit season two of Mandalorian fucking rules it rules so we're halfway through we've seen four episodes I will say I thought episodes three and four were weaker than one and two I I thought they were more plot heavy and mythology heavy and so they weren't quite my flavor of like just self-contained Mandalorian stories but they were still really good I'm not putting them down they're they're of a piece but those first two episodes Sean uh, are two of the best they've done so far between these two seasons and like, that first episode is, uh, like I said with the PS5, it's such a flex. Mm-hmm. That entire first episode is such a, hell yeah, we're back, bitches. <laughs> and here we're going to go, we're going to expand the aspect ratio. We're going to do the craziest special effects sequence in the history of television. Um, we're going to do the entire lore backstory behind Ben Kenobi's weird call he does to distract the sand people. Oh my god, it's it's been so good, Sean. I love it to death. Yeah. 
So I would say for me, episode one of season two is the best episode they've done. Like, I think actually kind of easily, like there's a bunch of episodes that have been amazing, but that one to me is like a, I just remember being so fucking energized coming off of that episode um, and just being like, oh my God. And and it's sneaking up on me because it was like, you know, that came out the day before Halloween and like shit was just crazy because shit is crazy in the world in 2020. And then all of a sudden being like, oh wait, oh my God, like season two of The Mandalorian has started. And sitting down and booting that up and and being like, oh, time to redo my Disney Plus subscription and, and watch this shit. And it is, yeah, season two, episode one in particular is just fucking amazing. Um, top down um, with like one, you know, I just have to shout out some of the best guest star anything I've ever seen in a TV show, which is getting Timothy Oliphant to saunter into a fucking cantina in Star Wars and just be fucking Space Raylan Givens from Justified. Um, and that whole scene, and he's wearing Boba Fett's motherfucking armor. Um, and that I think that was the thing that like I was just so um, bolstered by seeing this. Like this, yes, like Dave Filoni is definitely like here. His hand is on the wheel with this, along with John Favreau, because I don't think I could trust anybody with like properly doing a Boba Fett thing in Star Wars other than Dave Filoni, because you have to it's such a tight needle you have to thread with with trying to do Boba Fett stuff in modern Star Wars because you both have to try to satisfy the people who are crazy and who are like obsessed with Boba Fett even though he's like a fairly minor character that just has cool looking armor and the armor is like the legacy of Boba Fett is why the Mandalorian exists because the fucking Boba Fett armor was cool um, and it's like it's fine but those people are like insane and they just go crazy for anything Boba Fett related um, so you have to satisfy those people. You also have to satisfy sane people like myself, and I assume you're kind of in this camp as well, Jonathan. It's like, Boba Fett's cool. Like, I like him. He's cool in Empire Strikes Back. I find it very funny that he just gets, like, fucking knocked out immediately at the beginning of Return of the Jedi, and I, I cackle every time that happens because it's funnier every time I watch that movie and think about how popular that character <laughs> is, and he just gets fucking taken out like a bitch immediately, and it's great. Um, but I don't have, like, a I need Boba Fett to be in Star Wars or or Star Wars is just not cool anymore or something. Um, so it's like you have to satisfy the Boba Fett fanatics and the skeptics. And I think doing this whole thing where you have Timothy Oliphant saunter in and he's wearing Boba Fett's armor and this whole story about where the they got the armor and the vague hints of, like, that the crate Dragon killed the Sarlacc Pit, which is probably how, like, you can kind of justify Boba Fett escapes um, and all this stuff and you thinking that eventually this is going to be the Boba Fett episode and it never really is and then the very very end you get this one shot of fucking Tamora Morrison the guy who played Jango in the prequels who you know Boba Fett is a clone of um, and he's standing in the desert with like this crazy fucking nomad motherfucker because they had announced beforehand that he was cast in the series um, and they don't technically credit him in the end of the episode as Boba but obviously he's Boba um, and I don't even know if they need to actually have him be there. I would be really fascinating to see how Tim Moore Morrison would play the character and how they'd write him. But also, if that's the only thing we see of Boba Fett, I would honestly be happy because I think they like they nailed the like what is interesting about that character, which is his armor, and then like suggesting that there's like something else that could happen with him. Um, I was just so taken aback as a Star Wars fan about it is the best thing I've ever seen using Boba Fett, and they don't even really use him. Um, since Empire Strikes Back, basically. No, you're 100% right. And, like, I am very much on the Boba Fett skeptic side, where, like, 
I don't know if I even was that into the... Like, I think the armor's cool, but I was never in the, like, Boba Fett's that interesting a character. I find, like, the Mandalorian in the Mandalorian a much, 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 much more cool, interesting character. I even think the design of his armor is better than the Boba Fett design. Um, But, like, it is such a canny choice to have our Boba Fett episode is really about the armor because Boba Fett was always about the armor. That's all that he was. And so what you do is you have Timothy Oliphant who, you know, this show has such a good sense of iconography because so much of what this show is, is iconography. Mm -hmm. It is a dude with a cool mask. It is a cute little baby puppet Yoda. It is like iconography up and down. And Timothy Oliphant is the closest we have in America to a like Western action hero still, right? Like he is the 2000s John Wayne or something or without the racism. Yeah, Clint Eastwood is probably an even better comparison. Like, because he has been, and he has a legitimate claim to this because he is a Western star in Justified and in um, Deadwood. Deadwood yeah. You know? Um, and I think he is someone who like justifiably feels like he is from that world. And so you have him saunter in. And as you say, Sean, you realize it's Tim Oliphant before he even takes the mask off, and that's part of the joy of it. But the idea of it being Tim Oliphant wearing the Boba Fett armor, and, like, he's a good dude. He's not, like, he's using it because he kind of needs to, and he and the Mandalorian decide to work together, and he'll hand the armor over at the end of the episode, and then you get the Mandalorian having an adventure with Tim Oliphant in Boba Fett armor. I mean, you can just hear Jon Favreau and Dave Filoni high-fiving in the background because that is such a slam dunk of an idea. Um, and it, again, this show is so canny about how it deploys iconography uh, in a way most Star Wars stuff is not. Like, you know, Star Wars, um, the Star Wars sequel trilogy is so reverent for nostalgia, but it has no sense of how to deploy the iconography of Star Wars in the way I think this movie does, or this show does. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, I 100% agree. And And then also, like, finding spaces of Star Wars to, like, and this is like part of like that Dave Filoni sensation of it, of like you can both find things that like people who are fans of Star Wars are going to like think are this is a bad idea or you can never do this and you'd like nail it or people who have never watched Star Wars are only casual fans and you can excite them without confusing them. It's like I think the biggest example of that with Filoni is Darth Maul and Clone Wars, a thing that like I still can't believe that they fucking did and they pulled it off and it's like one of the best things about that show and Rebels is they brought Darth Maul back and it's just like so well done. Um, but it's but that is all over here in The Mandalorian and you see it particularly in season two as they're like digging even harder in because it feels like Dave Filoni was like dipping his toes in with Mandalorian season one seeing as like will, will this work? Can we break out of like the cartoon realm go into live action and do it like a very different audience that is way more sort of like normie or whatever and like just kind of normal people who like Star Wars but are never going to watch a cartoon um, because they're, you know, boring people. And so we can make this like live action TV show for them. And the the first season it's like you got a little bit of it. You got a baby Yoda, whatever. And then now it's like you go out fucking swing season two, episode one. You have Boba Fett, people talking about fucking Sarlacc pits. And then they have an entire action sequence at the end around fucking crate dragons. A thing that exists entirely because of one line of dialogue, as you identified from um, Star Wars Episode Four, where that's like the weird noise that Obi-Wan Kenobi makes to scare the, the sand people away. That is also like, you know, I mean, this is Dave Filoni was here involved with this. I don't know if John Favreau plays video games or not. The entire ending of this is basically what if Monster Hunter did the end of the Tatooine questline from Knights of the Old Republic that ends with 
you teaming up with an encampment of sand people um, to try to lure out a crate dragon and then kill it with bombs. Um, in that instance, use it on Banthas. But it's like, it is like so eerily similar to that ending quest, the, the like streamlined from KOTOR, but with like the production values and the ridiculousness of you fighting a fucking Rathalos or something in Monster Hunter. Um, it just like captures the fantasy of fighting a monster in Star Wars so perfectly. And then it has the added touch of doing like the smoothest fucking aspect ratio, like mid sequence aspect ratio shift I've ever seen. Um, that when it happened in like, because I didn't even notice it in the moment. I wasn't like conscious that the screen had slowly filled out to a full 16.9 until like five seconds after it happened. I was like, wait a minute, what the fuck? This, this was not full 16.9. This is like, like cinematic widescreen. And then I backed up and watched that scene again. And was like, oh my God. Jonathan's gonna flip his shit out when he fucking watches this because it's so fucking it's so smooth. It's it's the it's like, you know, obviously this is not a thing that is like shot on IMAX, but it is like when Christopher Nolan does his movies and he like has like here's like the two scenes that were shot on IMAX. But those don't like some of those are like kind of interesting. But it, even that like well, the transition doesn't feel like artful in that way. Here no, it feels so well, artistically so here's the thing. motivated. So here's the thing, when Chris Nolan does it, he does not actually do transitions at all. It's just hard cuts, yeah. and in fact, and it's more than two scenes. I mean, Dark Knight, it's 25 minutes. Dark Knight Rises, it was 70 minutes. Interstellar is like half and half, and then now he just shoots entirely on IMAX and 70 and mixes them. But what he does is like, sequences will be built around IMAX, but some stuff in those scenes still have to be shot on 35 for practical reasons. So it's just a lot of shifting between shots. And there's no transition, it's just hard cuts, and I think that can be, in the theater, in the IMAX theater, I think it works great. On home video, it's it's a little more jarring, because those cuts are just much more obvious. Um, but what they do here with The Mandalorian, it's not just the smoothness of that, but like the way they've re-articulated the entire shooting style of the show yeah. for that sequence... Um, because we've never really seen Star Wars in live action in 16.9. It has always been a cinemascope production. It has always been an anamorphic widescreen thing. And Mandalorian gets the codes of that cinematography very well. And in this scene, it moves to, yeah, large format photography. And you can tell the camera they're using is different. Because when you're shifting aspect ratio, you are by definition using at the very least a different lens and probably a different camera. And that's very clear to me that it's a different camera. I, I could be wrong, but it looks like a different camera to me. And it looks like it might even be like an IMAX digital camera because it is so crystal clear. And so you have this clarity and suddenly for this one scene, Star Wars is not about horizontality, it's about verticality. And Star Wars is never conceptually on the like, um, on the compositional level about verticality. It's always the horizontal line in this very Kurosawa-esque fashion. And here they're like, no, we're going for the verticality of fighting this giant monster. And I think that sequence altogether is maybe the best non-lightsaber action sequence in all of Star Wars. The only competition would be Hoth. And I think this might even be, I know this is fucking sacrilege to say, but that scene might have jazzed me even more than Hoth. It is an incredible action sequence, and uh, this was John Favreau's debut directing on this show. Yeah. He did not direct in season one, so this is the first thing he has directed for Star Wars. He's written a shit ton of Star Wars at this point, and uh, the man should direct more Star Wars. He's very good at it. Yeah, yeah. It was like that. 
like honestly the thing that that moment reminded me of more than anything obviously partially because i just rewatched it very recently but it was a very samurai jack-esque thing to do because samurai jack plays with i mean aspect ratio constantly and it'll have like little like picture picture mm-hmm. and panels um but i mean there are whole episodes of samurai jack wherein I changed the settings on my TV to zoom in so that it filled, because it was effectively a cinematic widescreen image that was contained in a four by three box because they didn't give a shit. And so, but now when you own it on home video, you're like, oh, I can just actually have this fill out the whole like like width of my TV and it like looks fucking great because it's on Blu-ray. Um, and it had that like attitude of just being like a nothing, almost nothing ever does this. You know, movies like live action stuff is almost always just shot in whatever its aspect ratio it is and it never changes. Um, and this one is like, nah, fuck that shit. Like, like let's do something fucking cool. And they did something really cool. Um, and, and yeah, like I'm honestly, obviously somewhat biased because it's around a giant monster, but I kind of agree that I think this might be my favorite like spectacle focused action scene that's not like a duel or something in Star Wars. It is uh, mind blowing and, and it is a throwing down of the gauntlet of saying hey we we were testing it with the first season and it obviously the first season was very expensive um but they didn't have anything that was quite like this in terms of the special effects like we're just going to do the like i mean the special effects around the crate dragon and this is going to continue for the spider monsters in episode two are more impressive than like most um big budget like hollywood movies like it is and some of that i think is that they have like the time and money to do it because they have like the confidence and the product now to like lean into it that hard but it's also that john favreau and then uh, for episode two peyton reed who's the director from the ant-man movies like these are directors who know how to shoot with special effects and have a lot of experience with like marvel movies and shit like that shooting for a huge ridiculous special it's like spectacle effects um and they know how to put that together in a way to get like the most bang for your buck. Um, and it is truly, I think, jaw dropping when they, when they fully pull out um, all the stops in these episodes. And episode three and four are huge yeah. showcases. Like I think it's better special effects than in any of the sequel trilogy movies, Oh yeah, but we'll get to that. I want to say one more thing on the aspect ratio because like, you know what you, I think you correctly identified. It feels much more like an animation style aspect ratio shift where you're doing it for the shape and and m- the aspect ratio shifts people are familiar with now are much more like the chris nolan imax thing where the shift happens because of the shooting format not because chris nolan wants to shoot in a square it's just because imax is a square image um like some people pointed out on twitter when i tweeted about that aspect ratio shift and they said uh, mission impossible fallout does this really well too and i'm like i didn't even know that had a shift and i went and looked on the blu-ray because i had i had the blu-ray but i hadn't watched it yet and that movie did does have two scenes shot in imax and it does the like raise up uh which mission impossible 4 did for its imax scene as well uh but when i saw fallout in theaters i saw it in a non-imax screen so the the ratio didn't shift it was just 235 to 1 and that's the key thing is that that's a difference of shooting format, but it is still essentially shot for 235 to 1. Like the Dark Knight and the Dark Knight Rises were still shown in normal widescreen theaters. It's made to be cropped. It's not about the aspect ratio. It's not about the shape. It's about the shooting format. What they do in The Mandalorian that makes it so effective is it's about the shape. They want to go to a different shape. It's not they wanted to use a different stock or camera. They probably did. But they did that to achieve the shape, not the other way around. And I think that's really significant. And and then, yeah, the special effects across all four of these episodes, they're not just good because of the time and money. They're good because I feel like they are 
executed with a sense of purpose and clarity and like you can feel the storyboarding going on mm-hmm. like clearly these were just very intricately planned in a way that a lot of Hollywood movies and we know this about Rise of Skywalker because that was a shit production just they don't they're so rushed and they're so like big and unwieldy it's almost impossible to do effect sequences this good because there's not enough like vision to it and there is so much vision to the effect sequences in this and as you say episode two is just it's a creature feature yep it's like a b movie from the 50s but with modern effects and i i part of me likes episode two even more because it is so creepy and gnarly and it's so intense but the both of them i mean i think episodes one and two are two of the best they've done uh it's so good yeah, and so talking about um, episode two, it definitely has, yes, like, it is that creature feature element. It's got so much good little, like, touches. Like, I love fucking Mando getting pulled over by the New Republic in space at the beginning. And that's, like, kind of the start of it um, <laughs> is, like, the New Republic are. And it's something that continues in the last episode, episode four, as you get a little bit more of this. Uh, they it's, it's with, like, the Western sort of style and genre conventions they're doing it very much feels like you're watching something like Once Upon a Time in the West and and the New Republic is the American government coming out further west and it's like, or like Red Dead Redemption 2 or, and 1 are both obviously other really good reference points for the same kind of trope of where you have the government man who's out here now and the law trying to like tame the Wild West or whatever. It's a lot of that kind of trope, um, but there's something so fresh about it in a Star Wars context and having it specifically be the New Republic and feeling like the New Republic is this thing you're supposed to just automatically be like, yeah, they're the good guys because they're the side that Luke was on and Luke and all those guys, they built the New Republic um, by defeating the Empire. But for people living out in the Outer Rim, they don't give a shit because it's like it's whatever the government is in the core worlds has like very little bearing on what they're doing out here now that the Empire has fallen. Um, so all that stuff I find really, really fascinating. Yeah, no, I mean, I love that element of it. Um, I, I also like that they just decide to let Mando go at the end because he's done all mm-hmm. these good things for them. Um, those are funny characters. But I just, I love the entire narrative setup of episode two of that, okay, to get to this information, you're going to have to take this mom and her eggs over here. And then it's just this giant wrench gets thrown in the works because, of course, no Mandalorian job is ever simple. Um and, and I love the... Uh, basically, episode two has, other than the New Republic cops, no human faces in it. You're only seeing mm-hmm. Mando through the mask, Baby Yoda, and weird Jim Henson puppet lady. Because she totally looks like a Jim Henson puppet from, like, the Dark Crystal or Labyrinth. And I love that. It's so cool. Uh, and this is also the episode where Baby Yoda becomes a murderer. <laughs> and starts eating those eggs. Which has disturbed the entire internet. <laughs> yeah, they, they, they are unfertilized eggs. So it's it's like it's okay, you eating yeah. sushi or something or caviar. Um, yeah, it's like I do because I think that I like I appreciate the dark humor of it. Um, I I definitely yes. get why some people are maybe <laughs> turned off from it because it is like a little intense, but it is I found it very funny. Um, and I think it's oh, like it's continuing on from a general theme that you got like very vaguely is that maybe Yoda, baby Yoda, being raised by the Mandalorian is not the best education for him and and he's gonna have to deal with like tim seeing people get fucking blasted all the time um because i think there's just like a certain like like a morality to baby yoda that is partially because he's a baby and then also maybe partially because that's like the world that the mandalorian lives in and so he's not necessarily getting this like very wholesome like upbringing or whatever they're leaning into the lone wolf and cub of it all yes uh, let's say 
Mm-hmm. But anyway, no, I that second episode, the all of like the set design and the all the spider creatures and like the webbed like when all the spider the, the sequence where they're all running from the spiders and then they all are like flying into the ship and then they have to like get up to the front and like lock the door. It's so good. And I just love that he has to take off in that ship and just like let everything in the back get sucked out into the vacuum of space. Yes. Oh god, it's so cool. It's actually like this show I feel like deals with like some of the like as far as you can in Star Wars, some of the like the science of the science fiction in here a little more. Uh, and it's really fun when they do that because mostly Star Wars is fantasy, but sometimes you get a little bit of that—the physics of it—that are very funny. Yeah, I yeah that moment of where they're just like, oh, well, we just got to pressurize the cockpit and hope it works, and we're just going to go. I <laughs> I adored that. Yeah, and there's something about like seeing at the end of the episode it saying directed by Peyton Reed again as the director of the Ant Man movies. It was like, a, of course, that makes like, of course, like you get a guy because. You know, the Ant-Man movies are not the most impressive narratively movies of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but they have some of the, I think, the most interesting, like, special effects work. And there's something about, like, oh, we if you get a dude who knows how to direct for special effects and, like, everything about the lighting conditions in that cave that's, like, very sort of, like, sharp, direct um, lighting that's mostly very dark. It's got a, like, Jurassic Park-esque thing it's doing to, like, make the creatures sit in that world really naturally. It just feels like... They're, they're getting really good people to get, like, the exact thing that they want to get um, for the stories that they're telling. Um, and I think that you really see that in episode two. But also, like, this is better than anything I've seen Peyton Reed direct. Yeah. I think the Ant-Man movies are really well directed. Particularly the second one has some really fun stuff. But, like, I thought this was a level beyond that. Um, that first episode, that is the best effects work John Favreau's ever done, like... Iron Man 1 and 2 have just terrible fight scenes. The action in Iron Man 1 and 2 is awful and inept. And then you get to Mandalorian Episode 1 and it's phenomenal. Like, Jon Favreau has clearly grown as a filmmaker in in that dimension. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really cool. And, and like, Episode 3 uh, was Bryce Dallas Howard again. And um, I thought that was a big step up from her directing in, ep- in Season 1. So it's always cool when you see directors, like, improve their craft, you know? Yeah. Although I do think, like, while it is definitely, I think, better than her episode in season one, it is, like, clear that it's like, okay, episode three and four are, like, just not quite as good as episodes one and two. Um, but they are still But really I think good. that's a scripting thing. Yeah. Like, I think the production is great. It's And it's not that the scripts are bad. It's that these two episodes, by necessity, are doing more, like, plot and mythology stuff and... I like that in The Mandalorian because I think it's cool plot and mythology they're doing, but it makes the individual episodes less satisfying, even though I think the core of both of them, like the heist on the uh, on the ship in episode three and then the storming of the base in episode four and the entire adventure with Carl Weathers and Gina Carano is extremely fun, especially in episode four. Episode four is very good. Yeah. Um, it's just not as satisfying as those extremely self-contained purely kinetic almost like george miller-esque mad max stuff you get in those first two episodes yeah so i'm i'm although i'm very excited to see because i think we all know what episode five is going to be but then i'm i'm hoping that six and especially seven which i believe is the one that's rick from is coming back to direct um i'm hoping are we get some good i want some more monster of the week stuff um mixed in with yeah. these more plot focused episodes um but this is where with episodes three and four this is where you most get um dave filoni's master plan is coming together because it is like when you think about the fact that what I think it was 2008 is when the Clone Wars started airing. Think of back then, yeah. Dave Filoni cast John Favreau as uh, Previsla, a Mandalorian character in that, just to play the voice 
which is not what John Favreau is known for. He's a director. Like he obviously acts in his stuff as well. He's very good as Happy in in the Marvel movies. But you know, John Favreau is a fucking film director. And so it's always just like a, it's a weird casting. I don't know. Maybe Dave Filoni and John Favreau are like friends beforehand or something. Um, and then he also casts Kitty Sackhoff to play a character named Bo Katan, who's Previsla's like second in command, basically, who starts out a fairly minor role early on in Clone Wars that grows pretty significantly as a role to where she's a pretty major character in season three of Rebels. And then she's also a major character in season seven, the, the last like a new season of Clone Wars in the Ahsoka storyline. And so they cast Katie Sackhoff, probably best known as playing Starbuck in the new, like, the remake of Battlestar Galactica. Um, and they kind of vaguely model the character off of the actress. And so then you watch episode three, and I'm pretty sure that it had gotten out that, like, they had cast Katie Sackhoff to probably play Bo-Katan, but I had forgotten that. And there's that moment where she fucking flies down in the Mandalorian armor that is, like, very identifiably Bo-Katan's Mandalorian armor. Um, and, and the voice comes out of it. And, it ha- and introducing it specifically that way. And then she takes the helmet off. And it is such a fucking mindfuck as a moment. Because if you are a fan of Clone Wars um, and all that. And you know who this character is. It is like mind bending to see that character just exist exactly as she is. But in live action. Because it's the same actress. She's like playing the character. Like she gets like all the physicality. Because they model some of like the the animators use reference for the actors when they animated the characters in the show. So it's like the physicality, the voice, the armor, like the hair, like all like the look of the character is the fucking character from Clone Wars just in live action. And then also I like that they pair that moment with a big reveal for Mandalorian, for Mando, that he has now encountered Mandalorians that are not from his tribe or his group for the first time. And it merges the continuities together by like explicitly stating what I had suspected, which is that Mando, that the Mando that we know is from some weird sort of like splinter group who has actually no fucking clue what the Mandalorians are like because he's never been to Mandalore. He's never met other Mandalorians other than the ones that have raised him. Um, And so combining this moment, this huge reveal for fans with this big narrative reveal for the main characters so that even if you don't know any of that other shit, it still is going to play as a reveal. It's so well put together. Um, and it did make my mind fucking explode when it's just, here's this animated character that exists like perfectly in live action, which I have never seen. I don't think anything has ever done it that way of taking an animated character with a specific actress and years later convert it into a live action character and just do it perfectly. Like it is fucking crazy. But if that was crazy, Sean, yeah. what about when Bo-Katan says the words, Go see Ahsoka Tano. Yeah. No, it's... How... Did you faint? Did you, like... Did you wake up, like, hours later and, like, someone in your house had, like, carried you into bed and put, like, a... Like, a fucking, like, hot towel on your head to, like, cool you off? I mean, I just... (laughs) I just started cackling along with Dave Filoni because it's just, like, how the fuck does this dude done this? Like, how is he going to make, like, millions of people... Um, who have no experience or knowledge of any of this stuff are now like watching part three of his Star Wars story, <laughs> like basically. Yes. Um, it's so crazy to me that this is somehow where we are with this TV show is that fucking, and it's almost certainly going to be the next episode because the next episode is written and directed by Dave Filoni. It's the only like, obviously he's like working on and doing like work on the other episodes as well. Um, but it's like this, that's his episode is the next episode. 
and I mean, he's the Ahsoka guy, so clearly it's going to be that episode that they put her in. Um, and I, it's just how the fuck you fucking madman? How is this happening? It's insane. I mean, it does speak to how big Ahsoka has gotten as a character that Disney would also just feel seemingly perfectly comfortable putting her in live action, mm-hmm. you know? It's it's kind of like Miles Morales, what we were talking about, of like Miles feeling like this big new character who's become just part of the mainstream consciousness of Spider-Man. And I feel like Ahsoka Tano is moving into that realm with Star Wars, right? Absolutely, yeah. And I think this is like the last step of now pushing her fully into live action, which is what the average person expects from Star Wars. So it's what they're going to go to Star Wars for is some live action thing. And now finally having Ahsoka Tano, which I believe, I, it was confirmed that it was Rosario Dawson, I just, right? Yes. I just looked it up and it will be Rosario Dawson. So this is a little different because obviously like Ashley Eckstein couldn't just play her in live action. It would be a little weird, right? Yeah, because both because the character is like way older now. And then, yeah, and also like the character is not modeled off of Ashley Eckstein. Um, but Rosario no. Dawson is extremely good casting. Um, like, like I could not come up with better casting to play an adult Ahsoka Tano. Um, like we haven't seen any pictures of her yet but I can just imagine the makeup yeah. on her like she's got the right body for it um, and like the right face structure it's like it's not hard to imagine and because it's a much older Ahsoka Tano she will have room to reinterpret the character a little bit you know yeah and obviously the fact that it's Dave Filoni that's doing it like it gives me all the confidence in the writing and like he understands the character um, to work yeah. with Rosario Dawson. And like Rosario Dawson is like an actress I fucking adore. Um, so, oh, she's great. Yeah, so I'm, I'm extremely excited to see um, that performance and like to see what they do with that character. Because there's like, it's, very, it's incredibly exciting to see an animated character just sort of exist in live action and to just destroy your entire frame of reference of what like reality looks like. But it's also extremely exciting to see um, a different actress be able to sort of like tackle... Um, an older and like different version of this character that we all love. Um, so that that is something Absolutely. I'm really looking forward to. I mean, Sean, this time next week we will have seen Ahsoka Tano in live action. That's a crazy idea. Yeah. And you know what's especially crazy is Mandalorian season two went into production as season one was airing. It was ordered ahead of time. All of this budget stuff. None of this is because the show was a hit. They didn't know. When this was made, like, this is the reason why we have this despite COVID is that they finished filming before COVID happened. That's how far in advance they were. But they basically ordered two seasons at once. And so I have to imagine that, like, the increase in budget and all this other stuff is just because the Disney people were seeing those episodes that we saw last year and going, holy shit, this is really good. And I think it's a it's a reminder that, like, sometimes quality just speaks for itself Mm -hmm. and that i think if you were a disney exec sitting in a screening room watching the first season of mandalorian you could feel we have a hit on our hands no doubt this is going to be a cultural moment like the moment you see baby yoda you're gonna know that but even beyond baby yoda like um so like really the question is what is season three gonna look like which will be the first one ordered and produced in a post Mandalorian is a public thing world Mm -hmm. you know like do they get more episodes do they branch out more are they going to do spinoffs they've they've talked about doing like a spinoff with the Gina Carano character not sure that's going to happen she's been a little um controversial on Twitter um so although I did enjoy I do like her in the show she was I thought good in episode four again loved seeing Carl Weathers again Carl Weathers 
can just be in anything. I will watch him read the phone book. He was so fun in that last episode, Sean. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and him getting to direct it also is very cool. Like, I was very... Very cool. It put a big smile on my face when I saw that credit come up at the end. Um, and, yeah, and then yeah. episode four has um, some of the best Baby Yoda shit. That whole scene in the, like, <laughs> just everything about Carl Weathers walking into a school, being taught by a C-3PO-style protocol droid. And fucking putting a little Baby Yoda puppet down into a like little school seat, and then Baby Yoda looking over and stealing this kid's fucking like blue macaroon or whatever the fuck that like cookie thing was, <laughs> using yes. the force. It's and that's the first time he's used the force this whole season so far is just to steal a fucking cookie, basically, uh, which is <laughs> very 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 good. And then him throwing up at the end of the episode and Mando like taking his thing and like, like he's his fucking like dad at like a brunch or something Uh, and like getting the spittle away. It's so funny. It's so funny. I mean, that's where like, Uh, like one thing that's like really cool about this season is I do feel like it's, you know, like Mandalorian is not a show that is like about heavy character development stuff. Like it's, it's at its heart a monster of the week show with some like larger plot stuff in it. Um, But it is cool to see Mando in this season and his relationship with baby Yoda and how like, comfortable they are um and you see that so much in episode four specifically with like you know that great opening gag of him trying to tell baby yoda how to like fix the thing and put the red wire where the blue wire was (laughs) blue wire where the red wire was baby yoda's like i'm a baby what what are you even talking about um like like that like the humor which is there in season one but i feel like it's even more effective here in season two because we know the characters so well and they're more comfortable like both playing and writing the characters um it's that stuff has just been such a joy to watch so good uh this is this is just one of the best shows on tv one of the best shows of the streaming era Mm -hmm. uh and i am very excited to i don't know if we're gonna go weekly but we'll definitely check back in at least at the end of the season uh because there will i'm sure the second half will be even more exciting especially if we have a uh, a world where ahsoka tano is now in live action yeah i'm i'm just i've just been thinking a lot about whether or not they're going to do the classic superhero team-up thing where when Mando meets Ahsoka, they have to fight. And just imagining Ahsoka kick the shit out of the Mandalorian. (laughs) He would, like, this is a lady who fought Darth Vader to a standstill in season two of Rebels. He would get his fucking ass kicked. I really hope that that's what happens in the next episode because I really want to see him just get his shit kicked in by fucking Ahsoka. Tano would be great. I have a feeling, Sean, Dave Filoni thinks a lot like you yeah. do about these things. So we're going to see. All right. We'll be back next week. We'll be talking. Uh, Sean, I actually wanted to ask you if you want to do this next week. Would you like next week to do... Uh, we finally have, I feel like, a free moment. Do you want to do our next Batman episode? Yeah. let's. I've had, bought those fucking 4K Blu-rays. So let's, let's jump into some Batman. All right. So if you're playing along, watch Batman 1989, the Tim Burton movie with Jack Nicholson and Michael Keaton. Uh, we did Batman Part One uh, last month, where we talked about the '66 movie. Now we're moving into uh, the kind of the real modern era of Batman on film, um, and I am excited to watch this one. So let's say that'll be next week's big topic, and uh, whatever else comes up comes up. So we'll see you next week. Happy Thanksgiving. Stay safe out there. Um, and, and I hope everyone has a, has a good Thanksgiving, as good as it can be during these trying times. I just want to thank Dave Filoni for giving us all the best Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving gifts aren't a thing. They are this year. Thank you, Dave Filoni. I am thankful for you. <laughs>